on the environment. The date is Tuesday, May 23rd. The time is 5.03 p.m. Please note that the ringing and use of cell phones, pagers, and similar devices is prohibited. Please be advised that the chair may order the removal from the meeting room of anyone using a phone or similar device. For remote participants, please note that the ringing of cell phones can still happen virtually and is still prohibited. Please ensure your device is silenced. Public comment will be available for each item on the agenda. For comments on matters that are not on the agenda, there will be an opportunity for general public comment. Participants who wish to comment in person will be asked to come forward one by one and speak clearly into the mic. Each speaker will be allowed three minutes to speak. Opportunities for the public participating remotely may comment by calling into the meeting. Opportunities for public comment remotely are available via phone by calling 415-655-0001 and entering access code 2594-606-8619 and the meeting password SFGOV, that's SFGOV. Once connected, dial star three to be added to the speaker queue. Best practices are to call from a quiet location, speak clearly and slowly, and silence any other devices. Alternatively, members of the public may submit public comment by email to environment at sfgov.org. Comments submitted via email will be forwarded to the commissioners and will be included as part of the official file. I will now call the roll. President on Here. Vice President Juan? Here. Commissioner Bermejo is excused. Commissioner Hunter? Here. Commissioner Stevenson? Here. Commissioner Sullivan? Here. President on we have a quorum. Thank you. Next item, please. The next item is item two, President's Welcome. This item is for discussion. Good evening, everyone. I'll start with our land acknowledgement. The Commission on the Environment acknowledges that we occupy the unceded ancestral homeland of the Ramaytoshaloni peoples, who are the original inhabitants of the San Francisco Peninsula. We recognize that the Ramaytoshaloni understand the interconnectedness of all things and have maintained harmony with nature for millennia. We honor the Ramaytoshaloni peoples for their enduring commitment to Walrep, Mother Earth. As the indigenous protectors of this land and in accordance with their traditions, the Ramaytoshaloni have never ceded, lost, nor forgotten their responsibilities as the caretakers of this place, as well as for all peoples who reside in their traditional territory. We recognize that we benefit from living and working on their traditional homeland. As uninvited guests, we affirm their sovereign rights as first peoples and wish to pay our respects to the ancestors, elders, and relatives of the Ramatush community. As environmentalists, we recognize that we must embrace indigenous knowledge and how we care for San Francisco and all its people. Thank you for your attention during this important acknowledgement. Commissioners, staff, members of the public, welcome to tonight's meeting. And just as we head into the summer, you know, today is a sunny day, but we should also note that the World Meteorological Organization issued an update finding that global temperatures are likely to soar in, on average in the next four years. The record for the planet's hottest year was set in 2016, and according to the forecast, there's a 98% chance that one or more of the next five years will be even hotter than that. So with this update in mind, it's so important that we essentially adhere to sustainable practices and make sure we continue our mission here at the Department of Environment and Commission to ensure that San Francisco residents and businesses lead by example. So later today, we're gonna to hear a number of items related to this, uh, including the clean transportation grants, contracts, and program. And then also San Francisco's commercial reuse program, which will provide $500 to 200 dine-in restaurants to transition away from single-use foodware and toward reusables. This switch to reusables will curb operating costs by one, eliminating the need to continuously purchase single-use foodware, and two, lowering refuse rates, well, a subject that we'll hear much more again today in later's hearing. Uh, 
Uh, and being green doesn't need to hurt the business's bottom line. In fact, it's economical to be sustainable. And the truth is adopting sustainable business practices is a cost saver at the end of the day. But it's up to us here at the department and the commission to promote these opportunities, ensure that all San Franciscans have the information and resources they need to get involved. Before we get started, I also want to note this is our first commission meeting without our longtime friend and colleague Johanna Wald, who retired this month after completing her fifth term on the commission. We'll plan a little celebration for her at Johanna after her decades of public service sometime later this summer. And also, on another sad note, this marks the final appearance of Commissioner Stevenson, who will be retiring after three terms on the commission. And it's been a pleasure to work with you, Commissioner Stevenson, after so long. And we'll hear more about you and your record uh, later on in this meeting. So with that, let's get started. Next item. Or I believe we have to take public comment first. We'll begin with public comment here in the room. Once in-person comment has concluded, we'll proceed with remote public comment. Are there any members of the public or present in the room today who wish to speak? If so, please come forward one by one and speak clearly into the mic. Uh, no, this is specifically on the president's welcome message. We will have general public comment on item four in the agenda. And seeing none, we'll proceed to remote public comment. Members of the public who wish to make a public comment on this item should now press star three to be added to the speaker queue. For those already on hold in the queue, please continue to wait until it is your turn to speak. And we'll pause for a quick moment while the access code and instructions are displayed on the screen. Seeing none, public comment on this item is closed. Thank you. Next item, please. The next item is item three, approval of minutes of the March 28th, 2023 Commission on the Environment Meeting and approval of amended minutes of the March 7th, 2023 Commission on the Environment Special Meeting. The explanatory documents are the March 28th, 2023 Meeting Draft Minutes and the March 7th, 2023 Special Meeting Amendment Minutes. This item is for discussion and action. Commissioners, in addition to the minutes from the March 28th meeting, we're asking the Commission to approve a change to the minutes from the March 7th meeting. The administrative code requires that the names of persons attending the closed session be included in the minutes. So we've included this information in the amended minutes for your consideration. Any uh, discussion or changes to this, commissioners? If not, could I have a motion to approve the minutes? Motion. A motion from Commissioner Wan. Second. A second from Commissioner Stevenson. Uh, with that, let's open it up to public comment then. We'll begin with public comment here in the meeting room. Once in-person comment has concluded, we'll proceed to remote public comment. Are there any members of the public or present in the room today who wish to speak on this item? If so, please come forward one by one and speak clearly into the mic. And seeing none, we'll proceed to remote public comment. Members of the public who wish to make a public comment on this item should now press star three to be added to the queue. For those already on hold in the queue, please continue to wait until it is your turn to speak. And we do have one caller in the queue. Hello, caller. You're unmuted. Your three minutes begin now. Can you hear me now? Yes. Hey, uh, David Popel, 
Um, I have no issue with the March 28th uh, minutes and wanted to say thank you for uh, coming back with uh, amendments to the March uh, 7th uh, minutes to be in compliance with the Sunshine Ordinance. Thanks very much. Thank you for your comment. And seeing no additional comments in the queue, public comment on this item is closed. Great. Please call the roll then. President on? Yes. Vice President Juan? Aye. Commissioner Bermejo is excused. Commissioner Hunter? Aye. Commissioner Stevenson? Aye. Commissioner Sullivan? Aye. And with that, it passes. Um, next item, please. The next item is item four, general public comment. Members of the public may address the commission on matters that are within the commission's jurisdiction and are not on today's agenda. We'll begin with public comment here in the room. Once in-person comment has concluded, we'll proceed to remote public comment. Are there any members of the public in the room today who wish to speak? If so, please come forward one by one and speak clearly into the mic. Hi, my name is Lara. I was here two months ago, I think at your last meeting, in regards to unowned land in the Mission District um, that a grown group of neighbors wants to turn into a park. And there are two businesses who are trying to turn it into their own unpermitted, unpermitted parking lot. So since the last time I was here, uh, we won an appeal hearing against the internet company Monkey Brains, uh, who had falsified a DBI permit application in order to put up a private iron gate, in order to start building their unpermitted 24-7 commercial parking lots on land they have zero legal rights to. Uh, because of that hearing, our supervisor is finally paying attention and has requested the city attorney to start looking into the, the legal vacuum that this property lives in, where it's being tax assessed, um, but the, the SSC is a company that stopped existing 100 years ago, et cetera, et cetera. Um, we are still working on, on the parcel. We're still turning it into a greenway. Um, I want to share some statistics with you, one from the SF general plan, specifically about the mission district that the mission has a deficiency of open spaces serving the neighborhoods. Um, analysis reveals that a total of about 4.3 acres of new space should be provided in this area to accommodate expected growth. The mission has a concentration of family households with children, almost 50%, which is significantly higher than most neighborhoods in the city. In addition to that, 22nd Street, which abuts one side of this parcel is designated as a slow street, uh, which is right where Monkey Brains is expecting to have their entrance slash exit. Um, in addition to that, there's a development proposal for a six-story 90 apartment unit building on the other corner. Um, and in addition to that, we have at this point now more than 2,000 signatures in favor of a greenway with comments such as, the mission needs more green space and monkey brains can go eat a brick. Uh, I want the greenway to be a reality. I live across the street from parcel 36 and have desperately wanted something beautiful to be done with this for the last 15 years. Um, this should be a park, not a parking lot. 
I'm a lifelong resident of the mission. We need vacant land cleaned up and available for use now. So hopefully this coming summer more is going to happen and we're going to have more answers from city officials regarding the future of this parcel. Thank you for your comment. Are there any additional members of the public in the room who wish to speak on this item? And seeing none, we'll proceed to remote public comment. Members of the public participating remotely who wish to make a public comment on this item should now press star three to be added to the queue. For those already on hold in the queue, please continue to wait until it is your turn to speak. And we do have one caller in the queue. Hello caller, you're unmuted. Your three minutes begin now. Thank you. Good afternoon. My name is Peter Dreckmeyer. I'm the policy director for the Tuolumne River Trust. The Tuolumne is where we get our precious Hetch Hetchy water. I spoke to you at your last meeting pointing out that the SFPUC has terrible policies related to stewardship of the Tuolumne River and the San Francisco Bay Delta, which is in a state of ecological crisis, both are. And following my comments, Mr. Pilpel pointed out that the commission in the past has had joint study sessions with the SFPUC, and I thought that was a great idea. So I wanted to encourage you to consider doing that. A very timely issue is being considered right now. It's called the Tuolumne River Voluntary Agreement. It's put forward by the water agencies as an alternative to the Bay Delta Water Quality Control Plan, which the State Water Board adopted in 2018, but has yet to implement because of lawsuits, including two from the SFPUC. The Tuolumne River Voluntary Agreement, or TRVA, um, was ruled out in the past. It just didn't cut it. The science did not back it up. But our governor, Mr. Newsom, um, is adamant that it be studied again. And so it's back at the State Water Board. We're wasting precious time. Uh, the SFPUC, without a lot of its own analysis, keeps touting it, even though the science doesn't support it. So I would like to encourage you to have a joint study session with the SFPUC on the Bay Delta Water Quality Control Plant and the competing Tuolumne River Voluntary Agreement. Um, we need judges to rule where the science stands and who's more accurate about what needs to happen to restore the Tuolumne River and the Bay Delta. Uh, the, the SFPUC has manufactured a crisis. They, during the last three years, drive three-year period record, they never had less than three than four years worth of water in storage. They're planning for their design drought, a mega drought, that their recent climate change study, which looked at 500 or 100 years of observed data, 1,100 years of tree ring data, and 25,000 simulated model runs could not produce a drought as severe as their design drought, but they're sticking with it. So again, I make my request and I appreciate all that you do. Thank you. Thank you for your comment. And see no additional callers in the queue, public comment on this item is closed.
All right. Thank you, Kyle. Next item, please. The next item is item five, presentation of the Commission on the Environment Environmental Service Award to Commissioner Heather Stevenson. This item is for discussion. Vice President Wan, the honor is yours. This is definitely my honor. I'm so proud to present to uh, the Environmental Service Award to our friend and colleague, Commissioner Heather St Stevenson, who will be retiring from the commission next month. The, the timing of this award has special significance. Not only does today mark Heather's final appearance as sitting commissioner, but it comes 12 years, 12 years to the day after Mayor Atlee first appointed Heather to the Commission on the Environment back in 2011. Over the course of the, after her three terms as a commissioner, Heather has had a lasting impact on the commission, the Environment Department, and environmental policy in San Francisco. A long-term, long-time member of the Operations Committee, which I have the honor to serve with you for the past, I don't know how many years, I actually lost count, had us insights and decades of experience as an entrepreneur, business strategist, and branding professional have been instrumental in building and sustaining the Environment Department's partnership with business, nonprofit, and community-based organizations. On the Operations Committee, she has also helped the department bring clarity and also focus to the annual budget development process, which sometimes not so fun, but definitely have a huge impact. <laughs> um, Heather's tenure as commission president coincide with the COVID-19 pandemic. Her leadership was pivotal as we transitioned to virtual public meetings and helped the department continue its progress on key programs and initiatives, initiatives from green business and essential worker ride home to the climate action Heather also facilitated the first phase of the department's racial equity plan and the department's continued work with the Office of Racial Equity. Indeed, equity and opportunity for women have been central theme in Heather's approach to public service and environmental leadership. This only partially captures Heather, who has not only been a business environmental leader, but a true friend to everyone who has served on this commission. And again, I'm so proud to be one of them, with, to serve alongside with you. A proud Montana native, Heather's enthusiasm and compassion are evident to all. She has been a joyful colleague, a tireless environmental advocate, and a true champion for San Francisco. So thank you so much for your service, Heather. We will miss you very, very much. Heather, we would like you to speak, but before you do, maybe any comments from other commissioners to follow up with Commissioner Wan? If not, yes, Commissioner Hunter. Yeah. Uh, Heather, I joined the commission when you were president, and I first want to start by saying thank you. You have an amazing leadership style, and that you lead with empathy and focus. And at the end of the day, I think those are the two most important things that a leader could have. You care about staff, you show care about all of your fellow commissioners, but truly care about this city. And I think if more people in our city acted like you do, it would be that much better of a place to live. I'll keep this short and just say thank you from the bottom of my heart. It's been a pleasure to serve with you. I'll chime in. Um, I remember when I joined the commission some years ago, um, Heather was one of the, the commissioners that it was just really clear based on her experience here on the commission and uh, as an entrepreneur that she 
Um, she was an adult in the room and just really had a kind of gravitas that made me want to emulate her in, in, in service here on the commission. Um, and in addition to that, it's just a lovely person. So it's, it's really tough to lose you after all these years, and we hope we'll uh, live up to your high standards in the future. <laughs> Commissioner Stevenson, please grace us yeah, with any words you might have. I have, I have notes in case I forget. Um, thank you for that. That was really beautiful. I appreciate all the words. Um, when I joined the commission 12 years ago, I honest to God had no idea what I was doing at all. Um, I came here because uh, I had a business, as Commissioner Wan mentioned, where I was doing climate work in my day-to-day -day life. I sold that business, and then um, as that was getting rolled into another part of the Walt Disney Company, I was leaving that, and I didn't know how to stay involved with the environment. And so when the opportunity came to put my name in the ring to be a commissioner, and then when um, Mayor Lee at the time gave me the great honor of having this position, I show up at my first meeting and I sat down and I realized I had no clue what to do as a commissioner or really what my role was supposed to be here. Um, I always like to talk, and honestly, most of you have probably heard me say this before, um, that in the startup world, you sort of identify a problem in the morning and by afternoon you decide on a path to try to fix it and then by evening you're implementing it to see if the choice that you made works, then you iterate on that. And I got here and everything seemed so slow. <laughs> I was like, I don't really know what I'm supposed to do, right? Like, I didn't know kind of how to work in this environment. Um, but, you know, I, I sat here and I kind of didn't speak for two years, roughly. Maybe it was a little bit less than that. And people that know me well know that um, that's not easy for me. But I wanted to really figure the whole situation out and the whole system out. Um, and when I did start talking, I think mostly what I was focused on was consistently asking, where are the teeth? Like, we would have discussions about these really important things that we needed to do and things that the city needed to enact. And I was always focused on, like, how do we get there faster? Like, who's got the power? Who's got the scissors to, like, cut through it and get to where we need to go? And it sometimes felt, as a commission working on the environment, with a department on the environment, where we have to collaborate so much across so much of the city, it sometimes felt like it was hard to identify where those teeth were. Um, but over time, I got... The, one of the beautiful things that happens when you're someplace for a long time is you start seeing how the seeds that are being planted over here start to bloom over here and things come to fruition over time. And so I got to see moments where people came up and gave public comment and an item would be raised and eventually we'd put it on an agenda and eventually it would become something that we passed here in the city. And eventually it just became something that felt like it was part of the DNA of the city that had been here forever. So I got to see that whole progress and that, that transition happen. And I realized that I think it's not necessarily that this department or that this commission is full of teeth, but that we're kind of a muscle for the city, right? That we lift up the city, we're pushing the businesses forward, we're shepherding the residents to do things, we're making sure that the other departments are doing the things that they're supposed to do. And we're using this incredible muscle that we've built as a department and as a commission to do that really, really important work. Um, I'm really, really proud of the work that this commission has done and that I've done with my fellow commissioners. Um, specifically, I am proud that a couple years ago we got the city to pony up money for the Climate Action Plan for the first time, and that then that was re-upped the next year through a lot of hard work with the department and the people working through an incredibly difficult time. And there's a path now to getting more money to implement what's in the Climate Action Plan for the city, and it couldn't be more important that that money's coming right now 
Um, and I'm, you know, as you opened up with your president's welcome, I mean, it's absolutely vital that we're moving this work forward. And while we're planting these seeds and using our muscle, that we do it really quickly. So I guess my request to my fellow commissioners is um, I want to plant a little bit of my impatience in all of you <laughs> so that you are the people who are asking where the teeth are and making sure that we've got the scissors and the knife and the, the progress moving forward on this really, really important issue. Um, I am incredibly honored to be able to sit up here with all of you, and I'm incredibly grateful for the award. So thank you very much. Other discussion? If not, maybe we'll move brief uh, to public comment. Hi, Commissioners. Alexa Kelty, I'm the Residential Zero Waste Coordinator. Um, I wanted to thank uh, Commissioner Stevenson for your service on behalf of uh, Department of the Environment or the Environment Department. Um, she served as president of the commission uh, during the pandemic, as Commissioner Juan pointed out, while being a mother. I'm a parent, and I know that's no small feat, so I appreciate your work through that and your continuous um, showing up and being here and bringing your full self, and we see that. And this is no small feat. Like We, we, we recognize that. And my personal experience working with you is uh, around food waste reduction. Um, all the way back in 2019, it feels like decades ago, um, Commissioner uh, Stevenson came to be our keynote speaker at our Food Waste Reduction Summit. It was a refed summit at the Metreon, and we announced San Francisco's involvement to cut food waste in half by 2030, and we all know food waste has such an impact on climate. Um, and that was a pivotal point for us because we really came out um, with the Pacific Coast Collaborative alongside the state of Washington, the state of Oregon, Portland, Seattle, state of California, um, which Oakland has now joined. And I just wanted to let you know that um, we have a number of retailers that have now joined um, and our list has gotten longer. And so we have... Um, a number of grocery stores along with food producers who have signed on to that commitment to cut food waste uh, by the year 2030, including Safeway, Foods Co., Rayleigh's, Sprouts, Walmart, Del Monte, um, Bob's Red Mill, to name a few. So you really kicked that off, and we thank you, and we appreciate you, and um, we thank you for your tireless service. Other public comment? Okay, so you know additional members of the public in the room who wish to speak on this item, we'll proceed to remote public comment. Members of the public participating remotely who wish to make a public comment on this item should now press star three to be added to the queue. For those already on hold in the queue, please continue to wait until it is your turn to speak. We do have one caller in the queue. Hello, caller. You're unmuted. Your three minutes begin now. Great. Can you hear me okay? Yes. Great. David Bilbao. Um, so I, too, want to say thank you to Commissioner uh, Stevenson for her years of uh, service. Um, I believe it was probably a zero-waste uh, team meeting years ago when there was a discussion about it. 
the iceberg or the wasteberg, and that we only see a very small amount of an iceberg um, above the surface, and that much of it is below the surface. And um, there was a parallel to um, how much we see and uh, waste above the, the ground, and much of it is is buried, and there were other parallels. But I think similarly, we see a small amount uh, of time uh, committed by the members of this commission in public session. Uh, but in fact, uh, much of the time that commissioners spend is between meetings, behind the scenes, doing work with the uh, department and with others to advocate uh, for the environment and our shared uh, values. So uh, I believe that Commissioner Stevenson has done much of that over many years, and I appreciate her uh, for that, and I want to thank her uh, publicly, um, and I'm sure I will have to say about uh, former Commissioner Wald, and it's sort of hard to say former Commissioner Wald uh, at a future meeting when um, Joanna is uh, recognized. Anyway, uh, thank you very much for listening, and thank you again for your service. Thank you for your comment. And seeing no additional callers in the queue, public comment on this item is closed. Thank you, Kyle. And I personally, again, want to thank you, Commissioner Stevenson. I think um, on a concluding note for myself, uh, it's rare to find people in policymaking who understand the people and the policy aspects of what we do, both of them. And um, I've learned a lot from you over the years. So I hope this is not goodbye. I hope you'll be back in many ways in different roles as well. Um, so with that, Maybe we should pause for a portrait with everybody. Children, they're allowed to go home and have dinner. <laughs> All right, with that, next item, please. All right, the next item is item six, staff introductions. The speaker is Tyvern Drew, acting director. This item is for discussion. Uh, commissioners, this is the uh, fun part of our agenda where we get to introduce the new staff uh, that we are welcoming into our environment department family. Uh, we have a few staff to introduce. I'm going to call all of you up at the same time, and then if you wouldn't mind uh, coming up, introducing yourself and what you're working on, that would be wonderful. So we have uh, Alina Beckerman, Nick Kessner, Benny Zank, and Eric Zapeta Flores.
Hello, good evening, commissioners. My name is Eric Zapata Flores, and I'm joining uh, the San Francisco Environment Department as an engagement coordinator, um, supporting our relationships with community-based organizations, uh, local businesses, and community residents. Thank you. Good evening, commissioners. My name is Benny Zank. I'm joining SF Environment on the climate team as our building decarbonization coordinator focused on residential buildings and we'll be presenting a little later on our Climate Equity Hub grant. Thanks. Evening, commissioners. My name is Nick Kestner. Uh, I'm the new senior building decarbonization coordinator overseeing, um, in parallel to Benny's work, the commercial and municipal decarbonization efforts and uh, focusing on our overall uh, decarbonization strategy so that we can meet our climate action goals. Nice to meet you. Good evening, commissioners. My name is Alina Beckerman. I'm joining the department as the newest zero waste coordinator working on the San Francisco Bottle Bank. Look forward to working with you. And those are the new staff, so maybe we can give them a round of applause. Any discussion, commissioners? If not, public comment. We'll begin with public comment here in the room. Once in-person comment has concluded, we'll proceed with remote public comment. Are there any members of the public present in the room today who wish to speak? And seeing none, we'll proceed with remote public comment. Members of the public participating remotely wish to make a public comment on this item, so now press star three to be added to the queue. For those already on hold in the queue, please continue to wait until it is your turn to speak. And seeing none, public comment on this item is closed. All right, thank you. Next item then. All right, the next item is item seven, review and vote on whether to approve resolution file 2023-06-COE, resolution authorizing Environment Department Clean Transportation and Climate Grants. The sponsor is Tyrone Ju, acting director. The speakers are Cindy Comerford, climate program manager, and Hannah Troon, clean transportation program manager. The explanatory document is resolution file 2023-06-COE. This item is for discussion and possible action. Uh, commissioners, as you know, this commission adopted policies to increase transparency around uh, outgoing grants over $100,000. Uh, tonight, we're going to hear uh, about two pending outgoing grants to this commission, including a grant to our Climate Equity Hub, which we've talked about for many years now, and we're really excited that, uh, to announce that we have a grant for a possible group to lead that effort with us. Uh, I'm going to turn it over to Benny, who's going to be giving the presentation on the Climate Equity Hub, and then to Hannah afterwards. Uh, hello again, commissioners. Uh, my name is Benny Zank. I'm presenting on behalf of Cindy Comerford and very excited to be presenting on the Climate Equity Hub. We also have here uh, Tony Kelly and Selena Wood uh, on behalf of Bayview Hunters Point Community Advocates who would be the recipient of the grant. And so uh, I'll have them say a few words after if that's all right. Um, yeah, so just to give a little very, very quick background, the idea of the Climate Equity Hub, we had this large stakeholder engagement process to do a sort of a, a gap analysis of the equitable decarbonization environment within the city. It was decided that we needed a coordinating hub and body to house the information on 
why to electrify, what support and rebates and incentives are available, also focus on the workforce development aspect and the tenant protections that will need to go along with that to really ensure the equitable component of this transition. Uh, we conducted a competitive solicitation and I'm very excited to say that we tentatively selected uh, Bayview Hunters Point Community Advocates along with their partners, HRNA advisors for this grant. Um, Bayview Hunters Point Community Advocates, their programs uh, combine both community organizing with education, advocacy, and direct services, and they're also implementing a separate grant for us uh, that's an environmental justice grant focused on um, a decarbonization pilot project in Bayview Hunters Point. Um, so would love to invite Tony Kelly and Selena Wood to say a couple words as well. If Um, Director Ju, Commissioners, thank you. This, I'm Tony Kelly. I'm Development Director, Baby Hunters Point Community Advocates. Here with Selena Wood, our Program Director. Um, very happy and looking forward to working with our partners at HRA Advisors, department staff, um, and community allies across the city um, on the development, establishment, and fulfilling the goals of the Climate Equity Hub. Um, the Baby Hunters Point neighborhood has such a history of concentrated industrial and polluting uses, and it's also been home for San Francisco's black and brown communities for, for generations, and now has a significant Asian American population as well. And so that's a logical starting point for, for a climate equity hub, um, and, and trying to demonstrate out from the department's eyes um, intentional and restorative justice, especially for black and brown populations who receive the worst of the city's history of environmental racism by offering a leading role in, uh, in developing and establishing and building citywide climate equity uh, in interventions mediated by a future network of community-based organizations. So this is a collaboration between us at Baby Hunters Point Community Advocates and uh, a consulting firm, HRNA Advisors, specializing in strategic guidance, analysis, and implementation planning to create a hub by promoting building decarbonization through the lens of community health and power. We're focusing on the benefits and challenges of electrification of existing structures centered on these underlying principles. And I'll be quick with this and then turn over to Selena. Um, one, community education and advocacy is best addressed by trusted members of a community with deep roots to those communities. So we really work from the ground up. Two, climate change caused by the combustion of fossil fuels poses long-term health hazards that disproportionately impact people of color and low-income communities, and uh, and so that and so it's important to to work from those communities and with those impacted populations to to develop these means and try to advance our carbon our decarbonization goals, and that by centering equity in this work means preserving the rights of communities of color and low-income communities to stay in their homes, preserve their wealth and advance their broader economic rights, including entrepreneurship, small business ownership, workforce development, and access to green capital. I'll turn it over now to Selena Wood, our program director, to speak about some of our larger goals with the Climate Equity Hub. And I, too, think Monkey Brain should eat a brick. Greetings, Director and Commissioners. Um, I just wanted to really underscore some of the barriers to electrification of residential buildings, which are substantial. 
particularly for communities of color and working class communities. I mean, there are multiple significant barriers of note, such as cost, which is the most obvious one. And per the permitting process alone creates obstacles which can be really burden burdensome in general. But intentional and systemic barriers with local bureaucracy and labor workplace practices, including racism in local building trades and at contractor sites, are problematic as well. And um, even in displacement and eviction issues create you know, great risks to residents. So in general, we'll be working with the community and stakeholders to develop policy recommendations specifically to address these problems. You know, the negative effects of per the permitting process and work workplace racism and building in building trades um, and eviction and displacement are just like the tip of the iceberg. We expect that when communicating with uh, the community and stakeholders and giving them a forum to really uh, express themselves and make clear what their real life problems are, uh, we'll be able to have a greater insight into resolving some of these issues and really work toward the goals of actual climate equity and not something that seems superficial. Um, that's it. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Hannah? Thank you. Good evening, commissioners. So I'm Hannah Trum, the Clean Transportation Program Manager for the department. I am presenting today a grant that we are awarding to N2 Action, a nonprofit organization that delivers community and economic development services. I believe we also have Representative Abraham from Abraham Ballad from the, um, the organization that will hopefully speak after me as well. The $150,000 award is funded through the EV Ready Communities Blueprint Grant that we were awarded from the California Energy Commission last year. And N2 Action with this award will be conducting community outreach and engagement on vehicle electrification and charging development to inform siting and project design for a grant-funded fast charging plaza that um, we will be looking to site in Bayview Hunters Point. Uh, my team will be sharing a bit more on this grant as well in our program update later in the agenda. The grant is for a seven-month term to align with our charging partners' um, development activities, and there is an option to extend uh, for some additional time. And we look forward to uh, working with N2 Action and improving access to charging infrastructure through this grant-funded work. We appreciate your consideration. Hi, Commission. Um, here to give more a little bit about N2 Action. We work with individuals, nonprofit, and for-profit entities. We serve through three program areas, which are community and economic development and place activation. We have worked with the San Francisco Unified School District, the Port of San Francisco, SF Environment, and San Francisco County Transportation Authority, as well as many other organizations. We are engaged from strategy and initial scope to completion and average five community events a week. Our deep roots make us a community knowledge bank, and our dedication to equity and diversity make us a very knowledgeable and strong partner with SF Environment. Thank you. Uh, commissioners, that concludes our presentations. Uh, both staff and our partners are available for questions. I'll start with one. I'm curious, have the grantees interacted with each other that are presenting today and to Action and uh, Bayview Hunters Point Community Advocates? Yeah. <laughs> okay, excellent. So that is the kind of collaboration I would love to see because it's part of the Climate Equity Hub works too, upcoming. Excellent. Um, other questions or discussion from commissioners? Yes, Commissioner Hunter. Um, 
just on the community equity hub, I know this has been a topic of discussion for a long time now. I'm very excited to see it um, get started. In the future, I would love to hear a little bit more about the organizations you partner with, specifically like uh, President Ahmed was saying, collaboration on environmental issues is how we're gonna make progress. I know a variety of organizations showed interest in the hub, so just in the future, how partnership with those organizations went. I'll just note briefly that we were intentional in the application to be pretty open about saying here's our broad network of possible collaborators, but really let that sort of be determined in the first few months um, of this process. One, so we can reach out to other applicants, other folks who have interest. There's actually a couple of emails on my phone right now um, of, of other applicants in this process who could be um, in that. And also because we want to be intentional about building a network of community groups that are trusted in vulnerable neighborhoods across the city. Right, because again, we re we take, really take that seriously. That that kind of trusted history and that kind of outreach it leads to more productive outreach. So we're going to really try to develop that in the first few months, and I'm sure we can work with staff and even present that to you as we develop the hub. Yeah, and just to quickly add to that, there the, one of the first tasks of the Climate Equity Hub is putting together the advisory board, and so that will be built into the structure of the hub and that board will have kind of oversight on operations. And Commissioner, we're happy to come back and give you an update as we're uh, making progress. Any other discussion, questions? If not, could I have a motion to approve this resolution? I'll move to approve. We have a motion from Commissioner Sullivan, a second? Second. A uh, second from Commissioner Hunter. Uh, with that, let's take public comment then. We'll begin with public comment here in the room. If there are any members of the public in the room today who wish to speak on this item, please come forward one by one. And seeing none, we'll proceed with remote public comment. Members of the public participating remotely wish to make a public comment on this item should now dial star three to be added to the queue. For those already on hold in the queue, please continue to wait until it is your turn to speak. We do have one caller in the queue. Hello, caller. You're unmuted. Your three minutes begin now. Great. Can you hear me okay? Yes. Great. Uh, David Bell again. I just wanted to briefly in support of the uh, grant awards. Any is a man fund, knows uh, the city very well, District 10 in particular, and its uh, diverse uh, communities um, from Petrolia and Duck Patch to uh, Baby Hunters Point and everything in between. Uh, and I'm sure that with his involvement here and his uh, colleagues and other collaborators, um, that the funds will be used effectively uh, for their purpose. And just wanted to uh, say thank you and support the resolution before you on this item. Thanks. Thank you for your comment. And see no additional callers in the queue. Public comment on this item is closed. All right. Please call the roll, Kyle. President on. Aye. Vice President Juan. Aye. Commissioner Bermejo is excused. Commissioner Hunter. Aye. Commissioner Stevenson. Aye. Commissioner Sullivan. Aye. All right. With that, the resolution carries.
Um, next item then, please, Kyle. All right, the next item is item eight, review and vote on whether to approve resolution file 2023-07-COE, resolution authorizing the Environment Department clean transportation contract. The sponsor is Tyrone Ju, acting director. The speaker is Hannah Chun, clean transportation program manager. The explanatory document is resolution file 2023-07-COE. This item is for discussion and possible action. Acting Director Ju. Uh, commissioners, uh, for contracts that are over $1 million, we're required to go to the commission for approval. Uh, tonight, we're bringing a pending contract with Health Equity and Wage Works to administer our citywide community benefits program. Uh, Hannah Troon, our Clean Transportation Program Manager, is going to come up and talk a little bit more about this contract. Good evening again. So SF Environment hosts the uh, pre-tax commuter benefits program for all city and county staff. And we've historically, or in the, our most recent contract, um, have contracted the management out of the program to wage works. The administrative fees for this contract are then covered through department work orders. Uh, our current contract with WageWorks uh, started in 2015 and expires in June of this year. So we conducted a public solicitation uh, to select a vendor for a new contract and the evaluation panel selected WageWorks for a new five-year, $1 million contract. And the scope of this contract includes distributing benefits, enrolling employees, account incentive management, and providing the, the software to run the program. Next slide, please. Uh, we pulled together a quick chart just to kind of demonstrate um, how this program has worked over the past few years. We've graphed the number of city and county staff who are enrolled in one of the commuter benefits programs over time since the start of the current WageWorks contract. You'll see there's been a steady increase in enrollment since the start of the current contract, uh, interrupted, of course, by the COVID-19 pandemic. And in the current fiscal year, uh, over 3,000 employees are currently enrolled in the program. We do plan to continue outreach to employees uh, by presenting at new employee orientations, city-sponsored events. And as more staff return to workplaces, we expect this uh, program uh, participants, uh, the increase in program participants to continue. We appreciate your consideration of this item. Any discussion or questions? All right, seems pretty straightforward. Um, can we have a motion to approve this? I move approval. Okay, we have a motion from Commissioner Stevenson, a second? Second. A second from Commissioner Wan. Uh, let's open it up for public comment then. We'll begin with public comment here in the room. Once in-person comment has concluded, we will proceed with remote public comment. Are there any members of the public or present in the room today who wish to speak? And seeing none, we'll proceed to remote public comment. Members of the public who wish to make a public comment on this item should now press star three to be added to the queue. For those already on hold in the queue, please continue to wait until it is your turn to speak. And we do have one caller in the queue. Hello, caller. You're unmuted. Your three minutes begin now. Uh, great. David Pilpel again. I'll assume that uh, you can hear me. I was uh, interested in the uh, presentation on uh, this item, the uh, graph that showed the number of city employees participating only seems to show the count or a, a graph of the count and not the number of eligible employees. So um, if this comes back at, at some point, I'd be interested in understanding the number of eligible employees, and that's the percentage of city 
employees eligible to participate who are actually participating uh, in this, um, and perhaps some uh, discussion either uh, before the commission, and I'm sure I can follow up with staff uh, separately on strategies to increase participation among city employees uh, in this particular uh, benefit program. Uh, those are my thoughts. Thanks for listening. Thank you for your comment. And seeing no additional callers in the queue, public comment on this item is closed. Kyle, please call the roll. President on? Aye. Vice President Wan? Aye. Commissioner Bermejo is excused. Commissioner Hunter? Aye. Commissioner Stevenson? Aye. Commissioner Sullivan? Aye. Motion passes. Next item, please. The next item is item nine, update on racial equity progress report. The sponsor is Tyrone J. Acting Director. The speaker is Lavanya Deepak, racial equity senior coordinator. The explanatory document is the racial equity action plan. This item is for discussion. Uh, commission, uh, the item before you is probably appropriately timed for Commissioner Stevenson's last commission meeting, uh, as racial equity has been one of her core priorities. And so we're happy to give this update. Uh, we've done a lot of work over the past year, really kind of deepening our work within, energy, within equity and kind of embedding it within department policy and throughout our organization. Uh, as noted in the Office of Racial Equity Progress Report, uh, I made several commitments of things we were going to move forward with. One was increasing the diversity of the department's workforce, particularly in leadership roles through the retention and hiring process, hiring positions based on our available budget to lead internal and external racial equity work. Three, advocating for additional resources and funding to implement and support ongoing racial equity action plan work. And four, uh, restructuring performance plans and incorporation of racial equity goals into all employee plans. Uh, the commission last heard uh, a progress report on our, on our racial equity action plan at their September meeting. And now I'm gonna turn it over to uh, Anya Deepak, who everyone remembered was our executive projects lead. And now I'm happy to report is our senior racial equity coordinator and has been leading our work and we'll talk about our work over the next six months. I'll turn it over to you, Anya. Thank you, Director Chiu. Good evening, commissioners. My name is Anya Deepak. Uh, pictured here are Shraddha Mehta and Soko Mare, who are the racial equity leaders for the department. I have been um, on the journey with them. If you look closely, that's me taking the picture and I'm reflected in their sunglasses <laughs> right outside this building. Uh, but I'm here in my new capacity in the role that is all thanks to the commission here. And I wanted to give you all uh, a report on the racial equity action plan. Next slide. It's not going to be that kind of report. This is going to be a show and tell our department's best efforts uh, in the various actions that are listed in the Racial Equity Action Plan. This is what we submitted to the Office of Racial Equity. They asked us what are some equity practices that our department has implemented in the last year that we can share with other departments. So just like in the previous years, we wanted to bring this to you. Next slide. So action number one is hiring and recruitment. 
In the past year, the department sent out hiring announcement in diverse recruitment channels like diversity and sustainability, BIPOC California network, environmental justice lists, HBCUs, and also the city's racial equity leaders network. And the data, what we found out after analyzing the data from that recruitment was that with the diversity list, the percentage of Latino applicants grew by 10% and the percentage of black applicants grew by 1%. Next slide. Action number two is retention and promotion. The department has started maintaining an internal intranet page with current and upcoming vacancies so staff can better plan their career paths. And also emailing all job postings to staff so they, there are no missed opportunities. There's also been a consistent rotation of acting roles when a higher classification comes vacant, thus affording equal opportunity at leadership to staff in line for promotion. Next slide. Um, discipline and separation. So DHR's 2020 annual workforce report noted that uh, when a department does discipline and separation, it finds it very hard to retain staff of color. We also know that there's more protections for uh, permanent civil service employees, PCS employees. So the department identified stable funding for eight positions, to convert eight positions from exempt to PCS, and out of those six have already been converted. Uh, for the data into the demographics of staff in exempt positions that are not eligible to get converted or do not have stable funding will help us have some measurable metrics for this action. Next slide. Action for diverse and equitable leadership. Like I mentioned, the acting assignments have provided leadership opportunities for those who might not have had them before. Moreover, every staff member, including managers and supervisors, have completed or will complete by June 2023, clock is ticking, a racial equity scan of their work. We already have 30 racial equity scans completed across program areas. We will follow up with a staff survey in the fall, like we did before, to see if manager demographics and decision-making processes have changed because of these efforts. Next slide. Um, mobility and professional development. When we did a department-wide survey last, we found out that um, there was a perception of a lack of standardized professional development opportunities. In the past year, the department prioritized professional development in employees' performance reviews, making it more accessible and equitable. As a next step, we will be evaluating barriers for staff to access these professional development opportunities. Something that we are very proud of in the department is the 9922 Associate Series. I was part of that series not many years ago when I came and presented about the Healthy Nail Salon program. Pretty doesn't stink. Uh, the 99 cohort, which predominantly is staff of color, has organized quarterly trainings around professional development during work hours. And this past year, the department extended the term of these positions from two to three years. What this does is give staff more opportunity to dig into their own training, attend other department and city-sponsored trainings, uh, utilize their tuition money, and also apply to longer-term positions in the department uh, that they might be interested in. Next slide. Um, action six is organizational culture, which is very close to my heart, to ensure that staff understand institutional racism and are equipped to address racial disparities in their work and in their workplace. The department required all staff to go through significant amounts of time and training on racial equity foundations and topics like imposter syndrome and microaggressions, and these topics were sourced from the staff surveys. 
This was strengthened by follow-up meetings um, in smaller teams and one-on-one -on -one coaching for managers and supervisors of staff of color. Staff spent anywhere from five to eight hours learning and reviewing topics of racial equity that were relevant to their work. The annual staff survey will help us assess uh, perceptions around organizational culture and the efficacy of these racial equity trainings. Next slide. So all in all, we're doing well, as you can see. Um, next slide. Right now, the demographic breakdown by ethnicity shows that we have a higher percentage of staff of color at the department, which is not the norm for environmental organizations. Next slide. Salary breakdown by ethnicity shows that staff of color are catching up to white colleagues. Some of this data is weighted by the fewer number of staff in some categories or staff in leadership and training positions. Next slide. A breakdown of new hires and promotions show a higher percentage of staff of color in both categories. So we know we are doing well and we want to start building this baseline data so we can measure our impact going forward. But while these are trending in the right direction, there is a ways to go. We also want to learn from other departments. Next slide. For instance, we are looking to learn how departments use their data from different stages of recruitment and how they've been updating minimum qualifications to reduce barriers to entry. Next slide. We're also looking to learn how departments ensure diverse and equitable leadership within the constraints of limited positions and a pipeline that might not be diverse. Next slide. And we are looking to learn how other departments develop guidelines for in-house mentorship programs. And this is something that is very exciting for us to be working on because when we invest in staff, won't they invest right back? Next slide. The racial equity work we do at the department would not be possible without the help of these 23 uh, steering committee members. I will leave this slide up and take questions if the commissioners have any. Thank you. I have one initial one. I, as I remember, there was an extensive amount of surveying and workshops we did pre-pandemic, and I'm wondering, is there anything like that on the horizon, or is it just kind of um, subtle email surveys that are happening as we go through this process, too? So we did do that survey, and that gave us the baseline for uh, deciding what trainings to do and what staff would really like to go into. So in the fall, we are going to redo uh, a big portion of that survey and then add some more things so that we can also uh, keep tracking it annually. Questions or comments? A quick question uh, for Director Joe. When you mentioned about resources, is there like a budget or goal the department looking at to invest into this plan or continue uh, to support the efforts? Uh, thank you for the question, Commissioner Wan. Uh, so as part of the add back from, from last year, uh, we did intentionally prioritize resources towards racial equity. And so the position that Anya is in was one of those funded positions uh, that we chose to prioritize across uh, all of our department priorities. In addition, we also allocated uh, a fairly significant amount of resources towards all the training that we've, we've taken over this past year. That was also a result of those add back dollars. Uh, we're obviously going through our budget process right now. Uh, we have advocated for res additional resources to continue this work, to continue uh, Anya's position as a senior racial equity coordinator, which has already paid dividends off in terms of it allowing us to advance our work and the rate and pace of, of advancement. Um, and we also have additional funds in our budget request for additional resources for continuing our training. 
and I think we'll find out in, an, in another week uh, what the status is of those uh, requests from the mayor's budget. If you can update us. Absolutely. Um, I just wanted to say thanks. I really appreciate the, both the specificity and the data, but also just the articulation. It was really clear, like, this is what you asked us to do, and this is what we did. And I, I think that the follow-up on um, the things that we're undertaking as a department is really awesome. So I appreciate the presentation. Thank you, Commissioner. Thank you, Commissioners. So thank you, Anya. And with that, uh, this was discussion only, but uh, we're going to go to public comment on this. We'll begin with public comment here in the room. Once in-person comment has concluded, we'll proceed to remote public comment. Are there any members of the public who are present in the room today who wish to speak? Seeing none, we'll proceed to remote public comment. Members of the public who wish to make a public comment on this item should now press star three to be added to the queue. For those already on hold in the queue, please continue to wait until it is your turn to speak. And seeing none, public comment on this item is closed. All right, next item, please. The next item is item 10, update on the Clean Transportation Program. The speakers are Hannah Chun, Clean Transportation Program Manager, Nicole Appenzeller, Senior Clean Transportation Strategist, and Anna Sherudo, Clean Transportation Specialist. This item is for discussion. Good evening again, commissioners. Uh, so I'm excited to have this opportunity to introduce our growing clean transportation team and provide an update on some of our key projects. Next slide. So we're going to walk through an overview of our goals, some updates on one of our major grant programs that we launched in the last six months, um, and then outline a few ongoing work streams that are informing our priorities uh, looking ahead into the new fiscal year. And next slide. So the purpose of the Clean Transportation Program as a refresher at the department is to coordinate implementation of the 2019 citywide electric vehicle roadmap, as well as the zero emission vehicle and electric mobility actions within our uh, climate action plan. <coughs> Next slide. The team that works on this program has grown from one and a half staff to three full-time staff over the last year. We're recruiting uh, one more specialist as well, and you'll hear from Nicole and Anna a little later in our presentation, so I'll let them introduce themselves then. Next slide. So our program focuses on the city's largest emissions generator, which is key to reaching the city's net zero emissions goal. These charts on the slide really demonstrate <coughs> this fact. On the left, we have our 2019 greenhouse gas inventory with transportation producing nearly half of the city's emissions. And then breaking that down further, on the right side of the slide, you'll see that private cars and trucks make up a large majority of transportation sector emissions. And while the city's priority is, of course, to get people out of cars and onto um, public transit, walking, biking, we know that mode shift alone is enough to eliminate transportation uh, sector emissions. There will be vehicles remaining on our roads to handle especially the longer distance trips and heavier duty use cases. And so these vehicles are what we're thinking about uh, prioritizing to electrify for our program goals. Next slide. So to electrify those vehicles, we need to ensure that we have infrastructure to meet their charging demand. So we conducted a study in 2021 with the International Council on Clean Transportation which found that we need 700 more public level two chargers and 150 more public fast chargers across the city to meet, uh, our 20, to meet demand in 2030 uh, to reach our clean transportation goals. 
And so much of our uh, team's activities are really focused on supporting this transition and achieving these public charging targets. And the map on the right-hand side of the slide helps uh, drive where we focus investment um, targets across the city. Next slide. So one of our key programs that our team manages to support uh, tar charging deployment as well as advanced alternatives such as electric bike adoption is the $2.4 million grant that the California Energy Commission awarded the city last year. Funding will be used to implement four selected actions from our electric vehicle roadmap and subsequent blueprints, which are listed on the right side of the slide. And we'd like to share some progress that we've made over the last six months in setting up and launching these tasks. Uh, so I will hand it off first to Anna from my team to talk about our e-bike pilot. Good evening, commissioners. My name is Anna Sherudo. I'm a clean transportation specialist, and I'll be giving an update on our e-bike pilot program. So with funding from the California Energy Commission, SFE is launching an e-bike pilot program to transition up to 30 app-based delivery workers from cars to e-bikes. The program will be launched in two cohorts. Each cohort will have 15 e-bikers, which is our pilot group, and 15 drivers, which is our control group. We'll be using a combination of um, surveys, informational interviews, and an app-based software system. And sorry, next slide, please. Thank you. Uh, so we'll be using a combination of um, surveys, informational interviews, and an app-based software system to track, analyze, and compare data from the e-bike deliveries to the deliveries made with cars. Some things that we'll be looking at specifically are vehicle miles traveled, greenhouse gas emission reductions, uh, worker earnings, and their overall feeling of safety on e-bikes. In terms of timeline, each cohort will run for six months, which will include one month of onboarding and specific e-bike training for the e-bike delivery workers, four months of data collection and deliveries, and one month of offboarding. And at the end of that six-month period, participants that successfully complete that pilot will get to keep the e-bike. Next slide, please. So you can see here that our response has been really encouraging. We received over 170, well, we received 173 unique applications across 21 zip codes. We saw a cluster of high-quality applicants around the Mission, Tenderloin, and downtown San Francisco. And currently, our program implementers are going through uh, all 173 applicants and selecting our cohort uh, that will be scheduled to launch next month. Thank you. I'll now pass it over to my colleague, Nicole Appenzeller. Great, good evening, commissioners. Next slide, please. Well, hi, I'm Nicole Appenzeller, and I'm really excited to be the city's first electric vehicle ombuds person. So as part of this California Elect Energy Commission grant, um, this position is also funded, and my main mission is to help make the process to deploy public charging stations easier for the city and county of San Francisco. And I'll be doing that as a central point of contact for electric vehicle charging service providers, the public, the utility representatives, and working across all stakeholder groups to identify challenges and help problem solve solutions. One of my first objectives will be to do a challenges assessment, identifying pain points in the process to deploy public chargers and identifying recommendations so we can streamline the process and get more chargers into the ground. Uh, 
I will also support overall phase two grant implementation across all these sub-projects. And I'll share more about one other sub-project next. Next slide, please. So the CEC grant also provides funding to install a public charging, fast charging hub in a disadvantaged community. This EV charging hub will have multiple parking stalls with multiple DC fast chargers that will be available for the public to use. And we are working with our charging partner EVGO to select a site, as well as our community partner Into Action, who you heard from earlier today, in order to provide community engagement throughout each step of the process. So Into Action will lead an engagement and um, input process to ensure the community is involved in the selection and design of a site for the charging hub. And we are planning to engage with the Bayview Hunters Point community in order to bring charging to a charging desert. Um, and our engagement process will be community driven and will involve informing the community about electric vehicles, charging, incentives, as well as the impact of this project, and taking into account community inputs to select the site, as well as hold community meetings, so we can ensure that we're providing updates out to the community and incorporating their feedback in the process. Next slide, please. And uh, finally, outside of this California Energy Commission grant, we're also doing work um, to assess overall EV network build-out. So along with SFMTA, we're working with our partners at the International Council on Clean Transportation to develop an analysis of charging across the city in order to assess our charging projections. So per the map that Henna shared earlier, we know where we need to go for 2030, but we wanted to assess uh, the latest developments in the market and the latest battery advancements to determine if we needed uh, to decrease any charging projections or if we needed to potentially look at different charging typologies. And as part of this project, we're also conducting a cost-benefit analysis. So we're looking at five different charging types, ranging from single-family homes, multi-unit homes, commercial charging, off-street charging, and on-street charging, or curbside charging, to assess where we should put our limited funds and resources for the city. And again, we're working in partnership with SFMTA, um, as well as working closely with SFPUC so that we can identify where we need to go next with our charging expansion. And as we wrap up that analysis this month, we are developing a communication plan and planning to hold a joint briefing with leadership at both SFPUC and SFMTA to identify the findings of this analysis as well as come up with our recommended next steps. And we're really excited to share those recommended next steps with all of you once they're available. Now I'll turn it back over to Hannah. Thank you, Nicole and Anna. So, you know, building on a lot of the planning work that Nicole just mentioned with some of the studies we're working on, one of our team, team's key goals this year is to secure additional grant funding from state and federal sources to have further planning um, support, but also uh, 
work on deployment of infrastructure. So we're closely following both uh, federal and state transportation funding plans to make sure we're taking advantage of the billions in funding that are coming available over the coming years. And there are at least three open grant solicitations that we're currently evaluating project concepts for that we've highlighted on this <coughs> slide, uh, including a federal charging and fueling infrastructure grant that's due next month that offers up to 15 million for projects led by cities. So uh, the department completed an, a request for proposals for private partners last month, and we're currently in the process right now of refining joint project concepts with those selected partners uh, to uh, come up with a comprehensive application to submit for this opportunity. And we're similarly exploring um, potential city-led projects and partners for the state grant opportunities, which are some of which are listed on the right side of the slide. Next slide. So, you know, these funding plans and open solicitations indicate that to really be competitive for this funding, the city should be focusing on publicly accessible charging projects in disadvantaged and low-income communities indicated by the map. Uh, and as these communities are disproportionately uh, affected by air pollution, our team and our city partners have already been prioritizing these types of um, neighborhoods across our applications to make sure we're serving them. Uh, and then going into the new fiscal year, one thing that um, our, our team will be doing is continuing to convene other city agencies to develop project proposals and identify ideal sites for future funding rounds informed by what we're learning from these current solicitations. So next slide, we'll, we'll close out here and take any questions the commission may have. Uh, yes. That was great, I appreciate the presentation. Um, so it's 700 new EV charging stations by 2030 is the goal. 700 from, I believe it's a t from the 2021 kind of uh, what the landscape looked like then. And how many have we done since then? It's a good question. I don't know if we have that, that data. Maybe Nicole might have that. Yeah, the 700 number is based off of our existing chargers. So we took into account um, the chargers that have been added since the 2020 study and so we know we need to do 700 more level two chargers in order to meet that 2030 demand. Okay, and how how many does this particular grant give us, the 2.5 that you were talking about? $2.4 million grant directly funds equipment for eight fast chargers in that that uh, disadvantaged community. Okay. Um, but there is, the, the overall scope of the grant is meant to deploy 100 additional level two chargers and 25 additional uh, DC fast chargers through the <clears throat> ombudsperson program. There's a mapping tool. So all of that's supposed, we're, we're actually meant to track that we are reaching that goal by the end of the grant. And do Very we have a number like we need X dollars to get to 700? That's a question. We should follow up with you on that and kind of make sure that we can do that, um, that math. Because the, the the equipment number, might, the infrastructure number um, on kind of the equipment and construction installation side is something that we can calculate, but the grid infrastructure costs will really depend on the siting of where we're putting the charters. Thank you. I know there's, um, I've had some conversations with different companies that are putting themselves out there to do sort of, think about it like Airbnb for a charger. Right? And so you get this curbside, curbside charger that actually is a revenue generator for whoever owns the property. Mm. Um, and I think there's probably a lot of collaboration opportunities there that I'm sure you're already talking about. Yeah, one of Nicole's roles is actually just identifying site hosts for, for all those, that awesome. number of chargers that we're supposed to reach. I love it. I love it. Awesome. Thank you. 
I also uh, wanted to focus on the definition that you're using, the car priority populations definition. I actually, yeah. for this program in particular, I think it's a good idea to use because my recollection actually from a policy committee meeting long ago with Commissioner Sullivan was the west side of San Francisco in particular did not have a lot of public charging stations. So as this program evolves and hopefully gets more funding, I think it would be really helpful to see uh, whether it's before or after snapshots or just mm -hmm. the evolution essentially of how you know public charging is hopefully becoming more accessible throughout the city. So as I remember, again, from that committee meeting, we saw like a bunch of little dots essentially dispersed, but the west side was actually noticeably not, um, uh, it didn't have as many charging stations at the end of the day. And I know, of course, like planning department has its own EJ map too that is developed, but largely concentrated again on the east side. So I, I think there's a balance to strike between all these definitions and mapping tools. Yeah, there, there's a, a number of different um, tools and definitions that, that we use. Um, and, and for example, with the, um, the federal charging infrastructure grant, they've uh, encouraged us to use the Department of Transportation's um, mapping tool, and that has a slightly different kind of inclusion of, of areas depending on what metrics that they're measuring. Um, so that's a good, good advice for us to, to think about what else to consider. Yeah, I just wanted to thank um, Hannah, Nicole, and Anna for coming before us today and making a great presentation. Um, really glad to see the clean transportation team doubling to three. Um, you guys have a really, really important job. Um, I don't think there's anything that we do as a city that is more important to achieving the climate goals that we have than what you're doing. Um, we know that mode shift is important, um, but we also know how challenging that is. And We've been at it for a long time, and especially with, with mass transit hitting some, some potential fiscal cliffs in the near future, I think what you're doing to try to electrify private, um, private vehicles is really, really important. Um, and all this is, um, we talked a lot about charging, but it's all with the goal to achieving some goals that we have, I think, in the Climate Action Plan for, for electric vehicle kind of adoption. And I just wondered, we know what those 2030 goals are. Do you have any information for us about how we're doing versus those goals um, recently? Yes, uh, thanks for that question. So I think there are two um, key goals within the Climate Action Plan for electric uh, vehicle electrification, one being that we want to have reach 100% of car sales to be electric vehicles without increasing the number of vehicles on the road by 2030. And we also want to see 25% of registered private vehicles um, be electric by 2030. Um, so, you know, I think the latest uh, numbers that we've seen from the California Energy Commission uh, indicate that our, you know, our zero emission vehicle population is in at 6.75% registrations, and then the sales numbers are 29.1% for the last quarter. So we're maybe about a quarter of the way of reaching our 2030 goals if you just take those, those metrics. Got it. And I think those numbers get updated quarterly. So yeah. look forward to hearing regular updates and we hope you'll all come back frequently to talk to us again. Definitely. Thank you. Yes, Commissioner Hunter. Um, actually, I would like to switch uh, over to the e-bikes. Uh, oh. First, just a clarifying question. So it's an entire cohort of 30 or there will be multiple cohorts of 30? Yeah, great question. So uh, total participants will be 30 e-bikers but each cohort will have 15 bikers and 15 drivers for a total of 60 participants. Gotcha, great. Um, generally, uh, and personally here, I do not believe in the private automobile. I do. Uh, I think bikes are the way we should go. 
You mentioned safety as one of the areas you'd be capturing survey results. Um, throughout the city, bike safety is a huge issue. One of the primary reasons I don't ride a bike is because I've been in multiple accidents now. When it comes to capturing those survey results regarding safety, how in-depth will you be going to make sure that we capture the true experience for those bikers? Yeah, so we have planned for three surveys throughout each program, uh, throughout each cohort. So we'll have a baseline survey that will test folks' feelings of um, biker safety prior to their trainings. And then we'll have a mid-survey at two months into the program. So after people have actually gotten those e-bike trainings and they have uh, some more awareness of potential bike lanes and safer paths to use, as well as just like the general rules of the road. And then we'll have a final survey at the end to assess, you know, now that they've had four months of deliveries and trainings throughout the program, because we have training um, for the first month of the cohort, but also we'll have support throughout the training. So if folks have questions around e-bike safety or a particular bike lane pass that they can use, they'll be able to, to access that training as well. So we hope that throughout those three surveys, we'll be able to capture um, participants' experience. Um, the only suggestion that I'd make, if you're open to it, is in that midpoint survey, capturing any particular corridors, avenues, or streets that people don't feel safe on. For instance, Valencia is going through a great redesign, but has been asking for a bike lane for I don't know how many years. So using this to support other efforts throughout the city would be great. That's a great suggestion. Thank you. Yeah, and I was just gonna, I was just gonna add that we are working uh, closely with um, the. County Transportation Authority and kind of other partners throughout the city to make sure that their their thoughts are um, reflect on this type of work is reflected in like the survey questions that we're asking and that the data is shared amongst our partners, including SFMTA as well. And, um, and also a partner in the Grand City SF Bike Coalition as well. Right. <coughs> yes, Commissioner. I think this is actually for you, Director Ju. Um, I know that it's Commissioner Sullivan's question about, oh, this is updated quarterly. You know, it's, I love getting presentations here. I know we've talked about a dashboard for the climate action plan. Is that, where are we in that? Because that would be such an easy way for anyone in the public to be able to get that information. Uh, thank you for the question, Commissioner. So you're right on cue. We are still on track to have our climate dashboard uh, up and running by the end of the fiscal year. And so we're targeting June 30th to have kind of that information uh, up and running. We, of course, did request money uh, from the mayor's budget to continue that dashboard. So obviously we've paid for the development, the posting and the website, uh, but it does take a little bit of funding just to maintain it uh, in perpetuity, which is something we wanna do. So we're, we'll bring it back to the next commission meeting so you can take a look at what that looks like. Although you won't be here, it'll be publicly accessible <laughs> uh, for you to view every quarter or every day. We'll be making public depending. Refresh. <laughs> Thank you. All right. Uh, let's open this up for public comment then. This is a discussion only item. All right, thank you, President On. And just a reminder, courtesy of SF TV, um, if the commissioners could please speak into the mic just so everyone participating remotely can uh, hear us clearly. We'll begin with public comment here in the room. Once in person comment has concluded, we'll proceed to remote public comment. Are there any members of the public present in the room today who wish to speak? And seeing none, we'll proceed to remote public comment. Members of the public who wish to make a public comment on this item should now press star three to be added to the queue. For those already on hold in the queue, please continue to wait until it's your turn to speak.
And we do have one caller in the queue. Hello, caller. You're unmuted. Your three minutes begin now. Great. Can you hear me now? Yes. Okay. Uh, David Pilpel. The computer wasn't happy, so I went to the phone. I hope this is better, although I'm still getting some feedback. Yes, we can hear you. Okay. Okay. Anyway, um, on uh, this particular issue of the EV uh, charging, um, I suspect, although I hope I am wrong, that the uh, biggest roadblock may well be uh, PG&E with their continuing uh, demands for uh, intervening facilities and delays in uh, processing uh, requests for um, new hookups for this, these types of projects and other public projects. So I hope the staff will be uh, working very closely with um, the PUC uh, Power Enterprise uh, staff under uh, Barbara Hale's very uh, capable uh, leadership uh, to identify and work through uh, the uh, PG&E uh, delays, uh, obstruction, and, and whatnot that may well uh, exist here. Uh, also, I'm just uh, thinking out loud if there are opportunities to uh, explore this on a more regional basis. I know within the room that we have some uh, leadership involved with both the Air District and BCDC and probably other agencies. So where there's an opportunity to uh, regionalize the solution here, uh, I think that would be helpful. Those are my thoughts. Thanks for listening. Thank you for your comment. And see no further callers in the queue. Public comment on this item is closed. Thank you, Kyle, and thanks to Nicole, Hannah, and Anna for presenting today as well. Okay, next item then. The next item is item 11, update on refuse rate setting process and review and vote on whether to approve resolution file 2023-08-COE, resolution encouraging the refuse rate administrator and the refuse rate board to approve a refuse rate adjustment for rate years 2024 and 2025 that helps San Francisco advance its zero waste and related climate goals. The sponsor is Tyrone Ju, acting director. The speakers are Jay Liao, Refuse Rates Administrator, Controller's Office, Dave Hilton, Senior Project Manager, HF&H Consultants, Jack Macy, Zero Waste Program Manager, Environment Department, and John Braslaw, Director of Ecology, Inc. Like explanatory document is Resolution File 2023-08-COE. This item is for discussion and possible action. Uh, commissioners, uh, I'll be very brief. Uh, we have a number of presentations. Uh, first, we're going to be hearing from Jay Liao, the rate administrator uh, from the Office of the Controller. Next, we're going to hear from our friends at Recology. And then finally, we're going to have a presentation by Jack Macy and our Zero Waste team. Um, so this process is a new process that the Commission has started to go through through this refuse rate setting process, uh, which was changed under Proposition F. Uh, the purpose of today's presentation is really to have the Commission uh, learn more about what's been happening during the last few months during this rate setting process, and also how uh, the initiatives and proposals and recommendations by various parties are advancing our zero waste goals, which are obviously a priority for us uh, in the Environment Department. Um, so first, I'm going to turn it over to Jay to give a, a little bit of an overview of where we are and the rate setting process. Uh, good evening, Commissioners. Uh, Jay Liao, Refuse Rate Administrator, Controller's Office. Uh, do we have the presentation up? Great, thanks. Um, next slide. Uh, so, uh, you know, today I'm going to talk a little bit about where we are in the process. In the last Commission hearing, uh, we gave a little bit of a primer about how this process is going to be unfolding. 
so I won't get too deep into that here, but I'll just give you an update of where we are. Uh, also talk a little bit about some of the outreach we're doing and the public comment to date um, around refuse rates. Um, and then I think the meat of it is really getting into our analyses of uh, Recology's proposal and some of our initial proposed changes that will likely go into our proposed rate order. There are a few items that we're still hashing out, uh, but it'll give you a sense of where we are. And then we'll focus there on um, some of the really good questions the commissioners had in the last meeting. We want to be responsive to those, uh, particularly around um, questions of you know how do these rates compare to other other cities, uh, what's a re reasonable profit margin, uh, how are you managing costs, um, are you updating the inflation factor. Uh, there was a question around uh, how do you validate uh, reporting tonnage, uh, tonnage reporting. Uh, so we'll try to address some of those here as well. Um, and then we'll also try to highlight a few of the program changes that I think are probably most relevant to this commission. Uh, next slide. Um, so this is just a quick overview of the rate process, just to give you a bit of a refresher. We received a Recology submission on March 7th. Uh, right now we're kind of in this middle, these three blue boxes where we're doing our analyses, we're building a public record and developing the, the rate order. And so uh, we're getting commission input from both this commission and the Sanitation Streets Commission, which are required by Prop F. Uh, we're also getting public input through these hearings and through uh, written objections. Uh, once we've kind of pulled all that together, uh, that rate order goes to the rate, refuse rate board who will make a decision on uh, future refuse rates. Uh, next slide. Uh, so as part of building the um, public record, um, we're not doing everything just through the hearings, but we want it to be transparent. So we have this interrogatory process where we send formal requests to Recology and get written responses. Uh, we take these requests and responses and they're posted publicly on a weekly basis. Uh, there are three forms of requests, schedule requests, which track the status and completion and validation of the schedules issued by, the, uh, by our office. Uh, the exhibits, which where we need additional information or explanation that's not captured in those schedules, and then questions, these are generally for clarifying questions or requests to uh, justify certain assumptions made in their submission. Uh, so to date, uh, we've had 17 scheduled requests, 11 responses from Ecology, 40 exhibits, 39 responses, 156 questions, 144 responses. Uh, in addition to that, the department has also made some requests that we track as well to Ecology, and so 25 of those requests have been responded to. Uh, in terms of out, next slide, please. Uh, in terms of outreach, uh, you know we've been doing email campaigns, social media, reaching out to neighborhood papers uh, and certain neighborhood groups. Uh, we'll be doing some press releases ahead of the refuse rate board meeting after we've set our proposed rates uh, for the refuse rate board. Uh, next slide. Um, the outcome of that so far is uh, 12 written comments or objections have been submitted. Uh, nine related to the residential rates, one related both commercial and residential. Comments are just generally objections to any rate increase. Uh, some of the reasons uh, that uh, raising rates already contributes to high cost of living. Uh, customers should receive credit for recycling material sales to offset cost. Um, just for the record, uh, we are accounting for recycling material sales to offset cost. 
uh, college should not be trusted to receive increase in ratepayer funds after the recent scandal uh, that they already received a COLA in 2023. And then one customer is suspicious of the basis for the rate increase and thinks that we should actually reduce rates. Uh, during the hearings and public workshop, um, uh, we've had uh, one uh, public commenter, uh, Mr. Pilpel. Uh, he has a, a, a number of comments. This is just a few of them that we're highlighting here. Uh, request for information on impound accounts. His concern around nexus and proportionality and use of impound account funds from rates. Uh, he would support proposals that minimize contamination and maximize diversion. He just wants to see reasonable fair rates and good value uh, for ratepayers and supports the current profit margin and would accept, expect some rate increase. Uh, next slide, please. Uh, so jumping into uh, kind of our analyses and our initial proposal, um, uh, we wanted to touch on a few things. The first few items, jurisdiction comparison and profit margin. Uh, we hired HF&H as a consulting firm to help us conduct these analyses and they'll be presenting on uh, these comparisons. Uh, I'll talk a little bit about managing costs. Uh, and then we'll give you a summary of some of the marginal impacts of some of the proposals we're considering for the rate order. Um, we'll talk a little bit about the impound account budget that would affect the department and then uh, walk through a few items from the Recology proposal, not all of these, but we'll talk about some of the program enhancements they're proposing that are relevant to this, uh, uh, this commission. Uh, I'll, I'll briefly touch on the inflation factor and then the zero waste incentive account, which is relevant to this commission as well. Um, next slide. I think this is where, can we bring in the uh, Dave Hilton to speak on these slides? Everyone hear me? Yes. Great. Thank you. Uh, as Jay mentioned, I'm Dave Hilton with HF&H Consultants. Um, and we're tasked with assisting Jay and his team with doing some of this uh, jurisdictional comparison, as well as uh, looking at the profit margin request. What you can see here in this first table we've put together, uh, we wanted to look at some comparable jurisdictions based on either the service uh, square mile size, uh, residential population, or geographic location uh, in similarity to San Francisco. So we have some of those listed here that we were able to find some good benchmark data on. Um, the first piece that we wanted to look at really was getting into what is the minimum cost of residential trash recycling and compost collection. So what's the lowest amount a customer can pay to receive service in any of these jurisdictions? Um, what you'll see here on this chart is that uh, San Francisco comes up to just high of $47. Uh, with the range being pretty high from about $55 uh, down to anomaly of San Diego where it's actually free currently. Um, that will be changing soon, I believe, but uh, we actually did not include San Diego in our average seen at the bottom of uh, $36.94 because it is such an anomaly, but did want to note that. Uh, so San Francisco sits about 30% higher than the average for jurisdictions based on that service level. Uh, that minimum service level, but it should be noted that the amount of service being provided uh, varies widely. And uh, San Francisco, that minimum service level comes with about 80 gallons of service. Uh, some of the others, it's all the way up to 288. And as we looked at the monthly 
uh, cost per gallon and taking that average cost or taking that lowest cost, dividing it by the gallons, you'll see that San Francisco comes in at 59 cents a gallon, um, which looks quite high when you compare it to the average of 28 cents. But it should be noted that this really, uh, a large driver of this is more about the service level being provided um, and the stratification between rate and the rate makeup. So these much higher uh, per gallon costs, and that's due to the low service level at that lowest minimum rate, whereas your Santa Ana, Anaheim, um, others with that much higher minimum volume, you're seeing a cheaper cost per gallon. But again, that's based on rate structure and incentives to uh, have higher conversion. Go on to the next slide. Thank you. So we also looked at uh, commercial rates and want to see what it would cost on that side of business. Um, we do see here that San Francisco's commercial rates are lower than the average. We have 5260 uh, for a commercial three-cart service once a week, uh, as opposed to the average of $81.89. So really, you know, great, great for that small business rate. We did also want to look at what the bin rates were. Uh, and so we compared the one cubic yard one time a bin trash service. Uh, and San Francisco is quite a bit higher compared to the other jurisdictions. But it should be noted that this is the posted rate and that customers are eligible for a diversion discount on that rate. And so that may not be what many customers see and could be a lot closer to that average we're seeing in this comparison of just under $183. Go on to the next slide. Thank you. So after we looked at the different rates and how San Francisco's rates compare to the other jurisdictions, we wanted to look at the profit request from Recology and whether that was uh, considered reasonable or within the ranges that other jurisdictions see. Uh, Recology requested 9.89% profit margin, which is equivalent to a 91% operating ratio. And uh, additionally, it should be noted that their um, ESOP presents potentially an additional tax savings of about two to four dollars or two to four percent uh, benefit them. As we looked at the risk management association benchmark of solid waste collection companies uh, with, with large revenues, uh, we found that the average there for that profit margin was about 6.9 percent. But it should be noted that this is all public companies there. Uh, um, looking at open market, competitive environment, not necessarily just municipal contracts. Uh, and so that competitive environment may be eating into the probability of what you see for those companies a little more. Um, we also wanted to take into consideration as we discussed the profit margin request that there is currently a balancing account, uh, which helps make sure that they're not losing too much money and eventually meeting this, or there's a sharing that goes on if it exceeded this uh, profit margin and Recology has also requested that that uh, balancing account be met to match 100% for that swing above or below their profit margin. This table to the right of this slide uh, was are looking at a number of different jurisdictions trying to find what that range for municipal contracts was. Um, and as you can see here, that profitability ratio really is quite large. Um, we have the lowest that we found was San Luis Obispo. Uh, at 7.53%, uh, 
And this varied all the way up to Carlsbad's 21.1%, and Oakland, uh, their CWS contract could be as high as 35.85. That is not a known number, but that is as and so as you can see, these municipal contracts do tend to have a wider range uh, and, and potentially a higher profit margin than what was seen through the risk management uh, association mark. Um, but what we believe in reviewing Recology's request for this profit mark uh, is that the profit number itself is reasonable and falls within the range that we see for others. With that, I'll turn it back to Jay. Uh, next slide, please. And so I, there's just a few points we want to make to address some of the uh, commission questions around managing costs. Um, so uh, there's uh, Recology, I think, will be addressing kind of how they internal, uh, manage costs internally, but as the you know, regulator of, of, the, uh, of this uh, operation, uh, there are a few tools that we have. One is through this rate process. You know, we review uh, the rates every two to five years. Um, uh, uh, reset the rates every two to five years, and during that process, we're scrutinizing, as you could tell through the uh, interrogatory process, we're scrutinizing every aspect of the business um, and looking for places for efficiencies and cost savings. Uh, the second piece is uh, the balancing account. You know, the balancing account, the intent is to uh, ensure that if there are unexpected, uh, there are unexpected uh, revenues, um, that these can go to offset costs for ratepayers and help stabilize rates in that way. If there are unexpected shortfalls that we can uh, smooth out uh, those, uh, smooth out the, uh, sorry, smooth out the, uh, the unanticipated costs over time to kind of mitigate those impacts on the rates as well. Um, so that's another kind of rate stabilization tool. Um, the other thing we're looking at are cost caps, um, so certain items. Uh, looking to uh, cap some of those costs. Uh, one example is um, in uh, Recology's initial proposal, there's, um, they're, they're anticipating a fully funded pension by the second year. Uh, we're looking at kind of a pension cost cap to spread that cost over five years to look at a fully funded target over five years that would lower rates in this current term. Um, position controls, they're asking for some new positions. Uh, some of them we think are addressing maybe some short-term issues. So instead of looking at a, a full-time or a permanent position, um, uh, shifting it to a project-based uh, position that we can reevaluate come next rate cycle. Uh, and last is uh, reporting requirements. Um, some of this is already happening. Uh, uh, one of the one of the costs that we had less visibility before this. Um, before this rate process was around um, corporate allocations and intercompany charges. Uh, Recology has a number of subsidiaries. Um, uh, under the last settlement, um, there was agreed to uh, a third party audit of their financials that allows us to uh, determine or to see if they're eliminating any of those ineligible costs. Um, and so that's one part of the reporting requirements. The other pieces of just ensuring that they're meeting at certain service level agreements um, and uh, you know, uh, and then allowing us to kind of monitor their costs on a quarterly basis as well. Um, next slide. Uh, so 
This next slide is just kind of a menu of some of the items that we're considering in our rate order. Um, and these are the marginal impacts. Uh, they're not additive, because when you uh, combine them together, they have kind of interactive impacts. But this just gives you a sense of the, kind of the magnitude of the changes that each of these items could have on the rates. Uh, so a few things we're looking at, zero waste incentive account, uh, the impound account budget, um, use of those, uh, use of any unspent impound funds, uh, changes to the proposed contamination enhancements, changes to any labor enhancements. Uh, the big one here is, uh, as I mentioned earlier, the the pension uh, the pension costs, and then uh, uh, inf the inflation factor update is a small change. Uh, so one of the questions from the last hearing was whether or not uh, we were going to be updating the inflation factor. So we have. Uh, this is the new inflation factors based on the most recent controller's estimate of inflation over the next two years. It slightly lowers the assumption that was uh, put out uh, in Recology's proposal and also based on controller's projection back in January and December, December and January. Um, so what this table shows is uh, that first column is the net revenue requirement um, this is the revenue required for Recology to meet their operating ratio or the profit margin. Uh, the second column is the, um, the dollar change in millions uh, to each of these items and then the rate change. And the last column is uh, what the single unit minimum rate would be for the minimum level of service. Uh, this is just to give you a sense of the impact of any of these changes you know, we're really talking about dollars and cents here um, to the rates. Um, so the current single unit minimum service rate is 4687. Um, so for example, the impound account, uh, the departments are looking for about in that first year around 400,000 more. That's a 0.11% change in the rates. That would increase the rates by about five cents for the single unit. Um, the remaining, uh, so the remaining potential rate impacts that we're working through are the corporate allocations, some economic factors that um, we may or may not include depending on whether or not there's material impact there. Um, and then organics pre-processing is one we're still working through in terms of what those costs would be. Um, uh, in addition to that, the rate order is gonna include a number of recommendations that don't have rate impacts, that would include the balancing account proposal, service level agreements, reporting requirements, um, and some other items as well. Um, so with some of these items, I'm gonna jump in a little deeper. We'll start with the impound account. We'll talk about the contamination enhancement, um, and then uh, go into the zero waste incentive account um, that we're, uh, change that we're proposing here. Um, so next slide. So the impound account is an account that uh, where ratepayers are funding uh, city-run programs, so for the Department of Public Works and Environment Department. Um, so this includes refuse-related clean services at Public Works and services to support meeting zero city zero waste goals for uh, the Environment Department. Um, combined, the departments are proposing 24.2 million in 2024, 24.6 million in 2025. Since Recology's request assumes 23.8 million, this is a marginally large, uh, higher amount uh, of rate funding for the departments. And this is the breakdown. 
uh, for environment departments, 14.7 and 15.1 for 2024 and 2025. Next slide. Um, just a little bit deeper, um, the, department, the department budget requests would support 55.9 full-time equivalent positions across their zero waste program, toxics, climate, environmental justice, green building, outreach. Uh, this might shift a little bit. We're currently working with the department and the um, city attorney's office for reviewing Nexus. It's, it's part of, a, I think, a, a multi-step or iterative process. And this the idea is to shift some of the programs out of rate funding uh, to mitigate some of the risk to the city. Um, the bottom line is that the department's budget will still be whole at the end of this, but we'll just be moving sources, moving some of these programs that might not have close ties to refuse or rate setting to um, out, of the, out of the rates. Um, the last item here is uh, uh, environment is requesting certain reports that are agreed upon in the past or memorialized within the rate order. And so we've been working with uh, the department on kind of identifying those reports and uh, what those requirements would be and including them in the rate order. Uh, next slide. Uh, so the first program enhancement that we want to talk about is uh, contamination. Um, this is kind of a suite of programs. So uh, Recology is proposing um, a waste zero enhancement in addition of four, for the first year, 400, around $400,000. For contamination outreach, $240,000. And the combination of this budget, they think would generate an additional $5 million in contamination fees. Uh, so the waste zero outreach, conducting site visits, presentations, and service recommendations to maximize diversion. Uh, contamination outreach, uh, this would include education, onboard camera, and third eye subscription, and additional FTE. And then uh, these would be expected to generate the $5 million additional contamination fees. Um, next slide, please. Uh, so in our proposed rate order, we have some concerns about this proposal. Uh, some of the components of the waste zero enhancements, I think, are likely to be retained. Um, but before committing to these other enhancements, I think there's some items that I think we need to resolve over the next year or two before the next rate cycle. Uh, I think there's some uncertainty around the technology, possible issues around consistent clear photos and false positives. Um, uh, you know, our consultants have been uh, reviewing, uh, on a kind of first review, there have been some issues in other jurisdictions um, where there were false positives in litigation uh, against, the, and against the provider uh, for uh, some of those contamination charges. Uh, we think there's uncertainty in the revenue estimates. I think there's uncertainty in any estimates because we're projecting everything, but um, we felt that um, I think the tie to kind of the additional activity that we're doing to the additional $5 million in revenue felt a little loose, and we want to kind of pin that down better. So we're pulling that out, even though that benefit, you would think at first that would benefit the ratepayers, but if we can't meet those revenue estimates, you know, that leaves us a hole in the future to solve. Um, the last is uncertainty in customer response. You know, will this actually modify behavior? How will customer response to cameras? I think, again, our consultants have noted that um, some residents have, uh, in jurisdictions where they have had these cameras, had issues with um, 
you know, privacy issues. Um, and the last piece is San Francisco has a high volume of pedestrians uh, who could potentially contaminate bins and current, you know, contamination costs that would, uh, for otherwise compliant rate payers. And so we want to understand the impacts there as well and make sure that, um, you know, the contamination fees are appropriate. Um, so I think all in all that we think that the current contamination program needs review, review of the protocol and what's actually being done right now. And so analyses of that current program and the analyses of, of what would happen with the expansion of camera use. Uh, our understanding is Mercology does have a handful of cameras and we may be able to conduct kind of a, a study to see, you know, if this would be effective in, in really identifying contamination and helping uh, target outreach to modify behavior. Uh, next item or next slide. Uh, so organics pre-processing, this is um, I think um, a, a, an immediate need. So Recology is looking to reduce the amount of non-compostable tonnage in its organics. Currently there's 24% of it's non-compostable. Uh, they're working with the department on steps to remove plastics from organics feedstock. Uh, in their initial proposal, they are proposing to invest 3.2 million on a system on a 10-year lease. Uh, this system would not be able to be implemented until the second, in the middle of the second rate year, and would cost approximately 205,000 in that first year, 410,000 per year in future rate years. Um, I think given the uncertainty around the new technology and the immediate need for the solution, uh, we've been working with Recology on uh, proposing an alternative, which would be using screens as an interim solution, which could be impl implemented more quickly at a lower cost. Uh, while over, I think, the next couple years, uh, we uh, will be folding into an infrastructure study that we're doing, um, that we'll be conducting on what are the kind of the longer term solutions for organics pre-processing. Uh, the other uh, request that our office has made was um, a cost estimate of using human sorters for kind of an interim solution as well. Um, next slide. Uh, I won't go too deep into this one. I think it's more of a, probably a department public works uh, program, but it's uh, weekend district cleanups. Um, and uh, this is in addition to the bulky re item recycling pickups. Um, so the current proposed program offers only one bin with no reuse component. Uh, the department uh, is containing this works against their uh, city's zero waste goals and climate goals. So one possible uh, option would be to expand the program to include additional bins and that reuse component. Um, we've asked Recology to cost that out and uh, um, share their thoughts on what they think the impact would be. And so this is another item that we're um, still uh, kind of hashing out. Next slide. And so the last item here is zero waste incentive account. Um, uh, so it's a financial incentive account that Recology could draw down on if certain targets are met. Uh, meeting all targets would equal an additional 2% profit for Recology. Um, so this contributes approximately $8 million in each rate year. Um, this varies depending on the interaction of these other changes we're making and also uh, uh, kind of the expectations of what uh, the ratepayers receive if some of these goals aren't met, then some of that funding comes back to ratepayers. 
Um, so right now, the practice is some of, uh, in the past, some of the unachieved funds in the account <coughs> have been used to support infrastructure spending, uh, and this was approved outside of the rate process. Um, uh, in addition, the, the department has proposed modification to this to change targets to percentage recovered rather than tons recovered. Um, uh, one thing to note is Recology has not met the targets for several years. Um, Recology is currently has a re recovery rate of about 39%, down from 62% in 2014. Uh, next slide. So that black line is the tons disposed, and below that are the blue lines, which were the targets. So since at least 2014, uh, Recology has been able to meet any of these incentive targets. Uh, next slide, please. And so because uh, ZWI is not really correlated with reductions in landfill tonnage and improvement to recovery rates, uh, we're proposing suspending the incentive account to look at other models that may be more effective and reduce cost to rate payers. Uh, currently, in its current form, we're in, you're essentially um, encumbering a set of funds that impacts the rates and the rate, pay, and the rate payer. Um, and if Recology is, if it's not having the uh, impact on improved recovery rates, um, it seems like a, um, just a penalty on ratepayers. Uh, in addition, I, th I think uh, the way it's been used in the past uh, uh, is, a little, is not as transparent as we'd like it to be. Um, so we want to look for a model that increases transparency in spending. Um, lastly, I think we can look at other jurisdictions and what they're doing they're con and consider some of those models, which are re retrospective, either incentives or penalties. And so rather than encumbering those funds, if Recology achieves those, um, achieves those targets, then they can see the benefit in the next rate cycle rather than having the funds, uh, funds spent before they've met those targets. Um, just as a note, you know, in this proposal, there's other new diversion contamination mitigation inve investments that's including a trash processing pilot and investments uh, we're still working out, but there'll be investments in the organics pre-processing as well. Um, I think that's my last slide. Um, just to give you a sense, we're really close to kind of uh, finishing up our rate order um, probably in the next couple of weeks. There are a few items we're still working through, um, but likely to propose some rates uh, either mid or late next week. Um, and I think that's it. I'm, uh, I think the next uh, present presenters are Recology, but I'm also happy to take questions or comments before then. Uh, questions from commissioners right now. I have uh, two quick clarifying questions. <clears throat> On the contamination rate, yep. the new technology, I just want to make sure I understand this correctly. Yeah. These are cameras attached to vehicles that assess what is in individual trash cans. Uh, that's correct. I would probably rather have Recology address that, but I, I think that's how it works, yes. Okay. Generally, um, I have a variety of concerns about use of technology. Um, I will save those questions for Recology, I guess. Um, the second point you brought up on the incentive program, uh, you said that there is no correlation between the reduction in tonnage in the landfill and the rate. I just want to make sure that I'm understanding your points on the incentive program. Uh, 
that the incentive programs that they've not been able to meet their targets. So there's been no, uh, yeah. So if you look at the chart, um, you know, it doesn't show any. Um, so to clarify, yeah. because Recology does not hit their goals, the program is not currently working to reduce the. Time. Exactly. Yeah. Right. right. Thank you. Thanks. Yes. Yeah. And I don't know whether to wait until the end when we hear from from others or 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 now. But what I'm most interested in is just making sure that this rate process um, achieves the goal of, of zero waste and that we we use incentives as much as we can to try to achieve that. Because I think um, you know jawboning people and um, more information is all good, but I, I think it's really when it when it comes to, to financial incentives that that really works. So. Um, no, uh, I guess I'll wait until till the end. Uh, Unless he had a response to it now. Yeah, yeah we're, I don't think we're opposed to incentives. I think just this current model is not kind of achieving those goals that we're trying to set. And so I think we really just want to work with the department on figuring out what model does with while reducing kind of the impact to the cost to ratepayers as well. Yeah. I guess just one more comment. If we're, there was a comment about cameras and privacy issues. I think if I'm weighing kind of zero waste goals versus privacy issues of a camera in a, in a, in a, in a, in a truck, I think I'd, I'd go with the zero waste goals to try to balance that. Thank you. Yes, Commissioner Hunter. And um, you mentioned this at the top. Have you received any public comment in support of a rate increase for residents, from uh, residents? Just from Mr. Pilpel, yes. Okay, thank you. Uh, yes, Commissioner Stevenson. Um, you might not have this answer, and it might be, you know, kicked to the next speakers. But um, what percent is business versus residential in what we do? Oh, yeah, that's probably more for ecology. Okay, I'll ask them. Um, then I guess this might be more in your camp. Can you tell me a little bit when we looked at the charts of residential rates, the minimum rate, and then we looked at the business rates, the minimum rate, and we came out very bad compared to sort of like sister cities um, on the residential side, but we came out pretty good, it seemed like, on the commercial side. Do you have a, an understanding of why that is? Yeah, and I think Recology can also address this a little better than I can. Um, I think it has to do, so you're, you're, I think you're addressing the kind of per gallon rate here yeah. in the residential side. Uh, I think it has to do with kind of the minimum level of service that we're uh, that we're uh, requiring of um, of uh, residents here. The volume issue. Yeah. Okay. And so, you know, the cost of picking up, regardless of if it's a 16-gallon versus a 32-gallon, it's the same or relatively the same. All right. With that, maybe we'll go to Recology right now then. Thank you. Good evening, commissioners. My name is Evan Boyd. I am the new regional vice president of Recology's San Francisco companies, uh, taking over for Dan Shea, who's transitioning to a new role within the organization. I uh, just wanted to take this opportunity to uh, introduce myself and say hello to this uh, commission uh, and express our appreciation 
uh, for the process thus far. I uh, look forward to working with you and the department. Um, and I think I can answer just real quickly a couple of the questions you asked, and then I'll turn it over uh, to our team to uh, kick over the presentation, uh, kick off the presentation. So uh, in regards to the cameras, these would be cameras that would be installed in the hoppers of the vehicle. Uh, so once the can is tipped, uh, it would take an image uh, of the uh, contents and then uh, determination could be made uh, upon that. Uh, and then with that, I'm going to uh, turn it over to Terry DeWong, our regional controller, to uh, kick off the presentation and answer any other questions you might have. Thank you. Um, good evening, commissioners. Uh, my name is Terry Dong. I'm the regional controller of San Francisco uh, Recology Companies. Here with me tonight is John Braslaw, director of business process improvement. Anthony Crescenti, General Manager of Sunset Scavenger, Kevin Flanagan, General Manager of Golden Gate, Maurice Quillen, Vice President and General Manager of Recology San Francisco, Becky Holden All, Senior Waste Zero Manager, and Jamario Jackson, Government and Community Relations Manager. Um, I'll be taking the next couple of slides to give a, a brief business overview of the San Francisco operations. Um, next slide, please. So Recology Sunset Scavenger and Recology Golden Gate are the San Francisco collection companies. They're responsible for operating the routes that pick up trash, recycling, and organic materials from San Francisco ratepayers. In addition, the collection companies operate numerous programs that serve ratepayers, including the abandoned materials, bulky item pickup, and outreach programs. Through our Waste Zero specialists, we conduct outreach and education to help ratepayers understand proper sorting and to encourage them to increase their diversion rates. Kevin will talk about these programs later in our presentation. Recology San Francisco is responsible for processing and disposal of the materials delivered to our facilities. The materials come to Recology San Francisco facilities including Recycle Central at Pier 96 and several facilities at the Tunnel and Beatty Complex including the Construction and Demolition Debris Processing Facility, which we call the IMRF, the Transfer Station, Organics Processing at West Wing, the Public Refuse and Recycling Area, and Household Hazardous Waste Collection Facility. The materials are sorted and hauled to appropriate facilities. Trash is disposed at the Hay Road Landfill near Vacville. Recyclables are shipped to recyclers. Organic material is transported to Recology's Blossom, Blossom Valley Organics North facility near Modesto. Um, Recology currently serves 139,000 residential customers, 8,400 apartment customers, and 16,000 commercial customers in San Francisco. We're proud, to have served, we're proud to have provided uninterrupted service throughout the pandemic and beyond to our San Francisco customers. Um, so to answer Commissioner um, Stevenson's question about the percentage of um, commercial versus the residential, it's about 10%. So next slide, please. Um, this pie chart illustrated in the slide represents the cost components associated with operating our business in San Francisco. Labor, truck costs, and disposal make up 78% of the total costs associated with our services. Next slide. Um, this slide demonstrates our commitment to making sound business decisions when it comes to managing costs. 
The chart on this slide represents the revenue and expenses of the collection companies in constant dollars. It helps illustrate how Recology was able to respond to the dynamic business environment during the pandemic while maintaining uninterrupted service to the city. The chart graphically shows how our expenses reduced proportionally with the change in revenue. Next slide. The RSF revenue expenses are similarly represented by the chart illustrated on this slide. The RSF team was able to reduce expenses from 146 million pre-pandemic, that's in rate year 19, to 124 million in fiscal 22. The graph illustrates how the reduction in both services and volume due to the slow economic recovery in San Francisco increased the cost per unit at the processing and transfer facilities um, due to the largely fixed costs associated with the post-collection operations. Um, please note the inflection point in rate year 20 when expenses exceeded revenue due to the pandemic economic impacts that affected us all. Um, next slide. Ultimately, this economic reality is what is driving the 16.36% requested increase in the tipping fee. Businesses have right-sized their services based on demand, which equals lower tons. The trucks still drive the routes. They're simply servicing less volume. Because disposal is only a portion of what makes up the rate paid by our customers, the requested rate increase is 3.9%. Um, I'll now hand it over to my colleague, Clevin, Kevin Flanagan, General Manager of Recology Golden Gate, um, and he'll take us through the outreach, contamination, and other operating issues. Good evening, Commissioners. Um, as Terry mentioned, my name is Kevin Flanagan. I'm the General Manager for Recology Golden Gate. Um, I want to start by providing a brief overview of our Waste Zero team's outreach efforts. So, Wayzero Outreach is provided in a wide variety of forms. For commercial accounts, uh, staff trainings are conducted either in person or virtually. These trainings may be conducted in English, Spanish, or Chinese. Recology's Wayzero team also train multi-family multi staff and residents both in person or virtually in English, Spanish, as well as Chinese. Additionally, we conduct property walkthroughs to advise property management of waste diversion best practices, deliver or mail waste separation brochures, posters, stickers, and ensure that property management have the waste stream data reports needed to track their building's waste streams on monthly or quarterly basis. These reports are critical for the buildings to track their data for environmental reporting and to track programmatic uh, outcomes. Next slide, please. In addition, our Waste Zero team works to identify Waste Zero champions at customer locations. We also work with special event coordinators to understand their service needs and generate high diversion solutions. The Waste Zero team also conduct tabling outreach events and educational tours at our facilities. In partnership with SFE, we also establish annual goals specifically for Recology's Waste Zero team to focus on. These goals are tracked and reviewed monthly and create and created for Recology to focus on areas SFE does not. These goals are also used to align specific tasks for Recology to perform so overlap with SFE does not occur. An example of one of these specific deliverables is the Refuse Separation Compliance Ordinance, which focuses on large quantity generators. 
By ordinance, every customer that falls within this category must be audited every three years. One of the goals, excuse me, one goal Recology is responsible for is auditing these customers' waste streams and documenting the findings uh, according to the ordinance. We conduct these audits each year and report the information back to SFE. SFE is responsible for communicating the findings back to the customer and enforcing the ordinance when necessary. Next slide, please. Listed here are additional activities our team team conducts uh, during, have conducted during this last rate year. Um, they've worked with over 1,200 customers uh, and conducted over 600 audits uh, for the refuse separation compliance ordinance that I just mentioned. Uh, it's important to note here that the Waste Zero team documents all outreach at an account level and have the ability to query that data. Documentation on an account history allows the team to note problems and trends on the account in order to offer assistance to optimize waste diversion and minimize contamination. In addition to direct contacts, Recology also offers general outreach through detailed quarterly newsletters, social media posts, postcard campaigns, and YouTube videos. Our most recent video, Back to the Core, was uploaded in April and has been and viewed over 140,000 times. The video promotes the benefits of composting food scraps in San Francisco and points out the negative effects of landfilling food scraps, such as an apple core. Next slide, please. Our, um, our application proposes enhanced education and outreach initiatives, which were developed in alignment with SFE's priorities and requests. If approved, these enhancements would include a, a separate annual residential and commercial services brochure and accompanying web content. The brochure will include details on all services offered uh, to these different types of customers. SFE would lead the design and Recology be responsible for the printing and mailing of the outreach material. Another addition to our, our program is, is outreach to all commercial and apartment customers below 50% diversion. This program prioritizes commercial and apartment customers with two yards or more of service uh, with a goal of improving their diversion to above 67%. This program will focus on roughly 1,000 accounts per year within the identified group and require an additional FTE. Keep in mind, these enhancements will be provided by Recology if the costs are included in the improved rate order. Next slide, please. Uh, moving on to contamination, as you heard earlier, um, a little bit about our current program. So Recology's current contamination program is a combination of point of collection efforts, high res resolution lo cameras located at our West Wing Organics facility, and several onboard camera systems on our commercial route trucks that you heard about earlier. We've piloted these cameras over the last several months. Our drivers utilize onboard tablets, to document contamination at the account level through our operating platform called Routeware. This information is reviewed and confirmed by our Waste Zero team who is also responsible for working directly with those customers that are impacted or being impacted by the contamination. In addition, our diversion auditors utilize our facility cameras to identify contamination from specific customer types. They are also responsible for conducting on-site audits at customer locations. And as mentioned, our Way Zero, Zero specialists also provide education and outreach to customers when ongoing contamination occurs. So next slide, please. 
contamination enhancements. So our application proposes a contamination enhancement that was developed in alignment with SFE's priorities and to reduce contamination, improve the quality of our compost and increase diversion. We are proposing to enhance our quality control through education and point of collection technologies. If approved in the rate order, these enhancements would focus on outreach and education through additional compost related collateral, trainings and site visits. The collateral will also educate customers on the potential charges they will receive from ongoing contamination. To identify and document contamination at the source, SFE and Recology are proposing an onboard camera system mounted in the hopper areas of our collection trucks. With this system, our existing onboard tablets, additional drivers will have the ability to capture contamination at the point of collection and notate customer accounts. This enhancement would add roughly th or exactly 38 uh, camera systems to our trucks and require one additional FT FTE to facilitate the program. The enhancement also proposes a streamlined contamination protocol that clearly defines the timeline before contamination charges can be assessed to a customer and what our customer will need to do to have the contamination charges removed. These enhanced services will be provided by Recology if the costs are included in the approved rate order. However, if this enhancement is not approved, we do feel it is still very important to streamline the contamination protocol and memorialize it in this rate order. Next slide, please. The last thing I was gonna to touch on is uh, weekend cleanup events. Recology is proposing to again hold weekend cleanup events for residents to provide additional opportunities for proper disposal of larger items. This program had existed in previous years and offered residents more opportunities to properly dispose of these types of waste and in turn support positive behavior and avoid material being abandoned on the streets. The proposal includes 22 Saturday cleanup events with each of the 11 Board of Supervisor districts receiving two cleanup events per year. Working in partnership with Public Works and the Department of Environment, these events would be located in accessible areas within each district to encourage participation. The proposed costs include, include outreach to raise awareness and participation, highlight diversion opportunities, and proper disposal. With the return of the program, additional program costs will be incurred, including driver labor, supervisor headcount for program coordination, and disposal for a total cost of $608,000 per year. It has been recently requested that Recology explore the possibility of modifying the cleanup events to instead provide a three-stream drop-off system for trash, recycling, and organics, as well as a greater reuse component. There are several barriers to Recology offering this type of event. Most notably, the cost for the program is estimated to be more than double Recology's initial proposal while not providing a discernible benefit. Recology's proposal is to collect items that normally are not put into any of the three bins, thus additional diversion may be realized. SFE's proposal to offer a three-bin event is not necessary as residents already have access to a three-bin system as required by city ordinance. So the material they bring would likely already be destined for proper diversion. In addition, this event may disincentivize customers from prescribing to the adequate service if, if they find they can dump material for free. A second critical barrier is the lack of locations in the city large enough to hold such an event. 
Additional trucks and debris boxes would be required to be on the ground and few available locations, location in, excuse me, locations in the city limits could meet this requirement. With that, I'm gonna pass it on to Maurice Quillen who's gonna talk about organics compliance. Thank you. Good afternoon, Director Jew, President Ahn, fellow commissioners. My name is Maurice Quillen, and I'm the general manager for Recology San Francisco. I'm responsible for all the recycling and processing and transportation in the San Francisco region. Um, next slide, please. Um, this graph is a visual representation of the constituent components of the organics as delivered to the west wing, broken down by the compostability of the feedstock. Based upon this information, the organics feedstock being delivered to Blossom Valley Organics from San Francisco contains up to 24% of non-compostable or not readily compostable material. Recology San Francisco is being asked to make significant improvements to the contamination levels present within the organics waste stream in order to maintain our ability to tip our material at Blossom Valley Organics. Blossom Valley Organics has established a 10% minimum contamination threshold for all loads of organics delivered to the facility. Uh, for processing. The contamination percentages established by BVON uh, are based upon historical observation, their processing equipment's contamination removal capabilities, finished compost quality, and consumer and market feedback. Not improving the feedstock could jeopardize our ability to deliver material to Blossom Valley Organics in the future. Next slide, please. Included in the San Francisco uh, rate submission was an organics pre-processing equipment installation. Recology San Francisco worked with several of our equipment vendors to design a long-term organics contamination removal solution. The proposed processing equipment was designed with a 50 ton per hour maximum throughput in order to allow variability in the feedstock and programmatic growth. Throughput calculations indicate that we would be required to process between 35 to 40 tons per hour to effectively process all of the incoming organics over two shifts. Recology believes that the processing system will be capable of eliminating 58% of the contamination contained within the organics feedstock. This represents the removal of 5.5 to 4.8 tons of deleterious material per hour. The final product would still be required to be subjected to additional processing at the composting facility. An alternative um, interim organics processing system is also being uh, proposed as part of Recology San Francisco's rate application. The procurement and deployment of a stationary organic cleaning system will take 18 months to complete. And Recology cannot unfortunately wait this long to address the organics contamination issue and has been researching the deployment of a temporary solution. The interim system will not be capable of processing all the incoming tonnage, but will be used to actively target the most contaminated loads. The deployment of an interim solution will not only have immediate impacts on the product quality, but also allow Recology to better assess the requirements of a long-term permanent equipment solution. The estimated cost of the interim system would be approximately $180,000 per year, uh, plus the cost to connect the electrical system to our building. Next slide, please. The interim organics processing system will be comprised of a portable, electrically powered rotary trommel. The specific piece of equipment will be equipped with purpose-built bag breaker attachments with renewable cutting blades that are designed to cut open bags and assist with liberating the organics from the bags. 
Based upon test runs performed, Recology estimates the trauma will be capable of processing to 10 to 15 tons per hour with a projected contamination removal rate of up to 50% without the mechanical use of, without the use of mechanical size reduction. Next slide, please. In early May, the Recology San Francisco operations team, in conjunction with the Recology staff at Portland Metro Transfer Station, had the opportunity to perform a two-day equipment demonstration with bagged source-separated organics collected in the Portland Metro area. The two-day test processed nearly 85 tons of organics with favorable results. The images on this slide represent the material that was processed over the two-day period, and in the middle of the two images is a summary of the loads and weights processed during the demonstration. Next slide, please. The images on this slide were taken during the equipment demonstration in Portland, and they show the sorted organics post-trommel on the left, and then the residue extracted by the trommel on the right. The table in the center represents the amount of deleterious material that was removed from the two demonstrations. When averaged together, this tonnage equates to a contamination removal rate of just under 10% of the incoming feedstock. Next slide, please. The refuse rate administrator um, has requested that Recology cost out a proposal utilizing manual sorters in lieu of a procuring a mechanical organics processing system. Recology does not believe that a manual, the manual sorting represents a viable solution to the contamination issue. The expenses associated with operating a manual sorting solution would be many times more expensive than the deployment of mechanical high volume screening technology. In order for sorters to manually sort the contaminants from the organics, Recology still believes that a bag breaker as well as some sort of purpose built sorting line would be required along with the um, electrical service upgrades that were included in our proposal. The manual sorting would be replacing only the screening component of the processing proposal. Essentially, we would be looking at replacing the proposed $405,000 auger screen from our proposal with six to eight sorters working two shifts on a sorting line. While Recology has not had time to cost out the manual sorting line at this time, um, the labor component of the project could easily add an additional $1.4 to $1.7 million per year in labor-related operating expenses to the Recology San Francisco rate application. Given the expenses associated with the additional headcount, this renders the project significantly more expensive than what Recology had initially, originally proposed. Next slide. Okay, um, this formally concludes the Recology presentation. And on behalf of the Recology team, I'd like to thank all the members of the commission for their time this afternoon. Uh, the Recology team is happy to answer any questions you have about our presentation or the rate application submission in general. I have one, oh, yeah. I have one question. Um, yeah, the number that jumped out to me was the, the percent of organics that is not compostable, 24%. Is that, um, is that what's going into the green bin and what's, what's not compostable from, from kind of green bins in San Francisco? Yes, essentially that first slide though with the bar graph um, shows the uh, main components of the organics waste stream. 76% of the material going into the bin right now is considered readily compostable. Right. So 24% of- Which to me is a, I guess a lay garbage person seems surprisingly high. 
Is that, where has that trended over the years? Is that, is that a, a normal number for other cities, or is that higher than it's been or lower than it's been? I've seen this number. Uh, I've been working in the San Francisco region for, for many decades. I was actually responsible for the rollout of the organics program back in the mid-'90s, and we had fairly low contamination rates. Um, as we began to roll the program out in a more automated fashion in response to legislation, people who are now receiving the recycling, the organics program, are somewhat uh, a little more reticent and potentially present us with some compliance issues, which drives contamination. Um, I think when we look at the San Francisco contaminant rate, contamination rates, um, and compared to some of our industry peers and in other cities within the region, I think our numbers are, are high, but I think substantially better than some of our other industry peers and jurisdictions. Thank you. Uh, yes, Commissioner Stevenson. In the um, contamination camera situation, a couple questions. It sounded like there might have been some testing and trials that have already happened, sort of pilot programs of what you want to implement, or is, have you piloted sort of a different program and now you want to implement the cameras inside the hopper, I think it's called. Yeah, so uh, currently we're piloting six six cameras. Um, they're similar to what we're proposing here. However, over the last eight to 12 months, our Waste Zero team has been providing feedback to uh, Third Eye, the vendor that we're using for this, um, to improve, you heard, kind of quality concerns and things of that nature. So this, this uh, improved system um, was, was kind of designed over that feedback over the last several months. That's helpful. And then um, the but keep in mind it's for people who contaminate the bins, who collects those? Um, so if, if a bin, if we come by for service yeah. and it's contaminated, yeah. uh, it depends on to what extent. So some, some drivers have a dual chamber truck to where they'll have a black card on one side and uh, a, an organics card on the other so they can just simply dump it on the other side of the truck. Um, if it's contaminated beyond, um, you know, a reasonable amount, 50% or more, um, then that, that container would most likely be routed, rerouted to a trash driver. Again, that's if the driver is able to see it before he dumps it. And in terms of the, whatever the, you get a fine, I don't know what, what we'd call it, if you are a person who's got the contaminated bins, where does, that's, that's the $5 million that we expect to collect, but we're not sure about that. Yes. Does that money go on their bill? How does that money get assessed? Um, in a couple of different ways. So the, the streamlined process that we've proposed uh, in one of the exhibits uh, to the rate administrator is, is really defining that process and making it more streamlined and clear to the customers, um, as well as our team to follow and implement. So if, if I were a customer that contaminated, I would get a warning letter from the driver. He would simply tag the cart, take a picture, report it in our system, our router system. That would then go back to our Waste Zero team. They would, they would review that, confirm if it was contaminated, and send a letter to them saying, hey, here's, here's what the issue was. If it happened again, um, then they would be assessed a one-time, essentially, charge for that contamination. And it would be equivalent to, say, an extra... Uh, say if you called in and got an extra service on your 32-gallon trash cart. It would be equivalent to a trash service for extras. Um, and then beyond that, if we couldn't resolve that issue, it would escalate into, um, you know, diversion discount removals and, and certain increments uh, along the way. And that would happen over a period of time, um, you know, and at which point, again, the Waste Zero team would be, be involved with that customer trying to resolve the issue. 
Maybe it's uh, somebody walking by throwing something in there and they put a lock bar on the cart. Um, or, you know, they, they, they're in a building with multiple tenants and we provide signage and things of that nature. So it's, it's an ongoing process. It's not, um, it's not intended just to be a complete punishment. It's, it's a progress. And um, are there efficiencies that you would hope to gain from implementing this in a big rollout? in the way that it sounds like it's set up in the proposal versus doing a small pilot of exactly what you want to do with the kind of communication levels. Um, what kind of inefficiency would we see if we did a small pilot compared to doing the whole big thing? Yeah, um, our, our thought was this was rather small in comparison to the overall number of routes we run between the two companies. Um, and when we looked at this, we kind of analyzed our, our history and number of tags and the revenue associated, and that's how we we perform it out or built out the $5 million. Um, so really, when we look at uh, the 38 cameras and what they would generally produce and that we could realistically focus on and impact in terms of our contamination and diversion improvements, it would be around 16 customers per month uh, per camera system. So it's not a large number, uh, but keep in mind, it's a lot of work to get to, you know, get that customer if they're truly contaminating at a significant level uh, to a cleaner stream. That's really helpful. So it sounds like it's already proposed to be a fairly reasonably sized pilot. Yeah, yeah, in our opinion. Yes. Okay, thanks. Thank you. One more uh, set of questions. Do you happen to know, Third Eye is the vendor you named. Uh, do they work in other cities? Uh, is there a precedent for this technology? Um, great question. So Third Eye, um, they provide camera systems for a lot of uh, collection vehicles and, and other vehicles, I would assume, for commercial applications. Um, they. I think previously really were just designed for backup cameras and side view cameras to improve the safety of, of commercial drivers. Um, and they uh, ventured into this realm, um, I believe, I'm not 100% sure, but it's, it's fairly new to them. Um, and they've really tailored kind of this, this system towards, towards us. So there's, you know, I will say that even though we're proposing an enhanced system, um, it is still untested. So the system we have in place now, um, we know what the challenges are. This one that they proposed um, in this new program is, is, hasn't yet been tested. So uh, be mindful of that. And Commissioner Sullivan. Um, yeah, a couple of other questions. So the number that is important to me is the recovery, recovery rate number. Um, and so one question is, who is calculating that? Is that, does Recology calculate that? And if so, does that get audited? Does anybody review it? How's that number generated? Um, yeah, I'm gonna defer to, to Maurice. Are you, you're talking about the contamination and, and organics volumes? Uh, not just organics, I think the 39% is overall. Okay. Is, is it not? Uh, I can uh, probably assist with some of the uh, answer. Accounting may have to step in, but essentially we have a fairly robust scale system and we weigh all the trucks in the, the facility and then we weigh all the commodities that leave the facility. Um, and essentially the uh, overall recovery rates are um, the difference between the tons that we receive and the tons that we recycle less the tons that went to the landfill. It's fairly straightforward. Um, it is, uh, the, the numbers are given to the city and they are in fact audited. Okay. And um, so it's 39% now down from 62% in 2014. Um, do, you, like, do you think getting back to say a 62% number is achievable um, within a reasonable number of years? And, and how, there's so much detail in your presentation. Like you guys are the experts and we're not. 
Yeah. Can you um, get back to that number and how would you do it? Well, the, the um, 21% reduction in the overall tonnage represents the closure of a facility. Uh, we operated an inert recycling facility at the Port of San Francisco, and that facility was shut down um, in 2019. And with the reduction in the tons going into that facility, um, that is what essentially drove this 20% this reduction. Uh, for us to contemplate you know, extracting another 20% of the tonnage out of the existing waste stream, um, that would be a fairly substantial task and would require a significant investment in infrastructure. And we would essentially be looking at improving the existing programs and, and perhaps um, removing a significant amount of material from the black cart, uh, which, um, the Department of Environment is in the process of proposing a pilot study, um, which will hopefully educate us and demonstrate what's potentially available to us um, when it comes to recovery of recyclables uh, out of the, uh, the black cart. Yes, Commissioner. No, Commissioner Hunter. Cede <laughs> my time too. And just to uh, reiterate, we do have a department presentation too. We do. So, Commissioner Hunter, please. <coughs> I think I just have a few quick follow-up questions for the contamination bit and then neighborhood cleanup. So when it comes to contamination, is it that a few bad actors are generating the majority of contaminated bins, or is it that this is a systemic problem throughout the city that needs to be addressed in mass because people are not sorting their trash correctly? Yeah, no, that's a great question. Um, I would say it's it's a combination, right? There's probably uh, folks that just aren't properly educated and are continually contaminating. Um, however, there are some larger generators um, that we, you know, I, we feel that the the focus should be on uh, to address that because they're very impactful when you just look at their volume compared to other customers. Um. Commissioner Stevenson asked a question around behavior change to be generated from this. So there's a currently, a, I think you said eight trucks that are- uh, There's six, six trucks. Six trucks. What percentage have we seen in a change in behavior where this has been implemented? Has this been effective? Yeah, um, I don't know if I have specific examples I can tie back to those, those particular trucks, um, but it's something that we could probably look into further and get back to you on. Um, I'll ask for explicit follow-up on that one, because if we don't know that if this is actually effective, I'm not sure we should be doing it. I'm not sure if staff has any insights there either, but if not, I'll leave it for now. Okay. Um, the last set of questions I have is around Third Eye. Who owns the images that we are sending to Third Eye? The reason I'm asking this question is this program wouldn't be the first of its kind. Cities around the world do this already. Right. We also wouldn't be the first city to be sued for millions of dollars because we are violating a utility privacy law. What is the data privacy agreement that we have with Third Eye? That's a great question, and I don't have the specifics for that. Um, that was something I, I would have to get back to you on as well. Yeah. Um, and then I think staff has been mentioned a few times on the neighborhood uh, program and how this won't uh, align with us achieving our zero waste goals. I'm not sure if staff is prepared to speak, but I'd be curious if you have any thoughts on increasing the number of bins at these neighborhood cleanups. Um, we could address that in the presentation and take that as part of uh, a response there, if that works for the commission. Great. Um, thank you. This is all great work, and I realize this is a new process, so thank you for bringing transparency to this entire thing. Absolutely. Thank you. Uh, please. Um, so maybe I'll, I'll 
provide a little context and framework as uh, Jack comes up to the mic. Uh, first, I do want to acknowledge um, you see the number of people here from Recology. Like, this has been a very enormous task in a very compressed and accelerated window given the new Prop F uh, kind of rate setting process. So I do want to acknowledge all the work of our Recology partners and also of the controller's office who have been leading this and shepherding us uh, through uh, today. The other thing I wanted to also just remind the commission is this is a, a two-year uh, rate proposal that is being uh, proposed, and so just wanted to set that context. And the last piece is just framing uh, Jack's presentation that what staff have put forward in terms of a resolution, so this is a potential commission action should the commission choose to vote on it. Uh, we've kind of taken the perspective of listening to comments and feedback from this commission. Uh, looking at our own environmental goals and priorities and proposing kind of our own recommendations about how we proceed and those are reflected in the resolution before you and what Jack is going to go over. So, Jack. Uh, thank you, Director Ju. Uh, good evening, Commissioners. My pleasure to join you. Jack Macy, a Zero Waste Program Manager for the Environment uh, Department. And uh, we'll just go ahead with the slides. So, um, uh, we are coming back to you two months after presenting on this before, uh, kind of revisiting what our priorities are in this rate setting process and in the context of that uh, resolution for your consideration. Uh, next slide, please. So, you know, guiding light and principle for us is our zero waste goal, which also is now part of our climate goal, and our target 2030 zero waste targets to reduce generation by 15% and to reduce disposal by 50% by 2030 are really what we're, we're focusing on, making significant progress too. And this, of course, is in the Climate Action Plan and our Chapter 9 of the Environment Code. Uh, next slide, please. So here are our sort of top priorities that we want to see uh, increased effort progress being made. And the order, this is ordered in how it's laid out in the uh, resolution in front of you. And so there are kind of, there are four areas here. The first is to reduce contamination. And in reducing contamination, there's sort of three strategies. One is to improve monitoring, and cameras are an example of that. The other is to utilize contamination charges, which have been previously approved in previous rate processes. And the other is to uh, pre-process, help clean up some of the compostables before sending it to the compost facility. We also want to see uh, improvement in outreach with some specific goals that you've heard about. I'll reiterate. Then the other is to test processing trash and then plan for uh, further scaling of trash processing in, in future rate years beyond the two-year rate period. Uh, and then finally, having some zero-waste incentive system uh, we feel uh, is important. So those are the, the key priorities. And if we just go to the next slides, I'll just uh, elaborate a little bit for you on some of these uh, key areas. So you've heard a lot about contamination, and this has actually been a growing problem. I think that part of this is a reflection that we have the most comprehensive organic collection program anywhere, certainly in the US. 
and were kind of a model for many jurisdictions and for actually the state requiring it in other jurisdictions. And it's comprehensive because it's not only single family, but it's all our multifamily. It's every property in the city. And I think we're, we've just, there's a lot of turnover. So there's, there's a challenge in keeping control of that. And with contamination, what we're seeing is that it's, that it's making it a little bit harder to process that material to be able to market it. And we actually have had a, a, a change in markets in recent years. They've become much more strict in terms of their quality standards, both recycling and actually and composting, where we go back to f the same farmer year after year after year. And if they start seeing little bits of plastic and glass, they're like, well, maybe we've had enough. And the state also has stricter standards. So it's about being able to make those marketable products. And contamination, that sort of contamination, recycling and composting, but recyclables and compostables in trash is another form of contamination. And that's keeping us from making progress uh, on our zero waste goal. So what we want is we want to see more thorough and consistent monitoring. And that's a role that the drivers play. But a key tool there is, is cameras. And if the camera technology can be effective enough to get really good resolution so it becomes very clear what we're seeing and that the wrong materials are there, we feel like that's a valuable tool. And I'll, I'll elaborate a little bit more on that. And the other, the other thing is, once you have good monitoring, the value of monitoring is only going to be if you use that data to give critical, timely feedback to the generators, to the residents and businesses that are messing it up. And there's different ways of giving feedback, tags, letters, talking to people. But it's also important for people to realize that ultimately there's a consequence. And as you know, we've had our mandatory recycling composting policy in place now for 14 plus years. And in addition to the, the, the outreach and assistance we give, the kind of accountability piece, the potential stick, the, these, the refuse rate mechanism of contamination charges, which is basically the ability for ecology when there's excess contamination and they've given people warning, given people an opportunity to clean it up, but they won't eventually to be able to give a financial consequence. And that's something that is easier to trigger and has more, is more significant, especially for commercial properties that will pay hundreds if not thousands of dollars a month. Having them pay a fine through the city system of 100 or 200 is just not going to make any difference. So the contamination charges is a really important tool. And that tool was used in a limited basis over a number of years. And then when COVID hit, Recology paused that, and we understood. And that has not been reinstated. So a priority for us is to, for Ecology to reinstate those contamination charges as soon as possible and to be able to exp expand them. And again, having better monitoring tools will help back up that. We need good, solid data if you're going to start charging people more. So let's see. Let's move on. Uh, I think I jumped. Go the next slide. Uh, so camera technology, uh, what we've the, the images that we've seen to date uh, are not consistently of high enough resolution. And you heard how they're working with Third Eye to improve that. That's very promising. Technology is always improving. We think there's great potential here. But we actually need to ver verify that those images are adequate for the use of contamination charges or the use in our refuse separation ordinance with the largest generators where we require them to hire a zero waste facilitator, an expensive proposition. 
So we want to see proof, and then we'd like to see them used. So our kind of a minimum bar here for what we want in the rates is at least a good evaluation of these cameras. And I understand the, the Refuse Rate Administrator is hesitant to approve the cameras for the 38 trucks without ve that verification. So we might, I don't know if we'll get that in time, but if not, at least maybe an expanded uh, a test would be our kind of minimum requirement there. Uh, next slide. So the, the third piece about dealing with contamination is pre-processing. You actually heard a good detailed presentation on that. And uh, I would say that after looking at what Recology just presented to you and talking to them, I say we would support the alternative. We, we thought, we kind of generally agreed, we agree with the need for pre-processing for sure. We weren't quite sure if the original package that they were proposing with bag breaking and all that would be either effective or potentially might lose too much organics. And we think that we need to test whatever they do. So a, a lower cost system that they're proposing, a simpler system we think makes sense, can implement it faster. So we, we support that. Uh, and the other thing, we also, I also agree with what you heard from Maurice saying that the alternative to use labor, that's not gonna be a job that anyone wants to do is to pick through organics. It's not gonna be very effective. Screens are much faster, much more consistent. Uh, so I agree with that assessment that it's, not, it's too expensive and not practical. Uh, next slide, please. Uh, outreach is one of the things, you know, we've done a lot of outreach over the years and so has Recology. One of the things that we're, we're doing here is just making sure uh, what we've seen is that we're not reaching uh, all the residents frequently enough, and we want to get on a schedule that every resident is getting a comprehensive outreach package. This is an example of a part of that, at least every other year. So what we've talked about is, you know, a we work with them in developing the collateral. They do the printing and the mailing to all single-family residents one year and all apartment dwellers the next. So that's an example that, that you heard illustrate. Uh, that's that's a, a key piece of the in, improved outreach. Now, we recognize they actually have a lot of resources, staff and funds for outreach, hard to assess for us right now how much additional is needed to meet that requirement, but that is uh, a requirement for us. And I'll move on. Uh, trash processing. So the, bot the bottom line is this is, this is something that we've actually looked at with Recology f for many years, and in previous rate processes, there was actually a, a approved plan to develop trash processing, but that was on site. It was contingent that they would get additional land. That, that's not gonna work. So what we've seen is we've sort of had no progress in this area for a number of years. And this slide here, shows, uh, based on a 2020 characterization, sorting of the trash stream, that more than half of what's going into the trash bins is readily recyclable or compostable. And if you look at stuff that might not be readily recyclable or compostable, and depending on what your system is, that's potentially recoverable, then it's even more, getting you know towards 80%. So I think that the reducing contamination, improving outreach, all of that could help reduce a little bit what's going into trash, but I strongly believe that, and, and from what I've seen in San Francisco and elsewhere, as long as we have a trash bin that's gonna help keep the blue and the green 
clean, we're going to end up with a lot of good material and trash. We need to process that trash to recover what we can of recyclers compostables if we're going to meet our 2030 targets. And it takes a number of years to develop facilities. So the opportunity that we have now is that we have a new, relatively new facility across the bay in San Leandro run by waste management using fairly state-of-the-art sorting technology. And they have the ability to test you know, a, a, good, a large enough chunk, 1,200 tons of trash that gives a good range of material and, and run it through their system uh, carefully, separately, to really uh, help us assess the products that can be pulled out and the quality of it, make compost, because that facility actually makes compost, and we want to make sure that they can make a clean enough compost that can actually be marketed. So that's been a little bit of a concern. But they're doing that now. All the multifamily trash uh, is, and almost all the trash now in Oakland is being processed by this facility. Um, so they're they uh, have an impressive track record. So doing that test is an important part, and we're glad that, it's, that the Refuse Rate Administrators is supporting that at this point. And another piece of this is that with that uh, test and that data, we want to work with Recology in creating a plan on how we're going to move forward towards fuller-scale processing in future rate years. So that's, that's another part of that. Uh, next slide. Actually, this next slide is just it's actually a picture of this uh, facility in, uh, in uh, San Leandro. Kind of looks like a regular recycling facility, and that's what are, you know, they're using a lot of similar technologies to do separation uh, before they uh, do further processing of the organics and compost it. The next slide, I want to talk about zero waste incentive. We, we did have a, a fairly good discussion two months ago about that, and I and I hear the concerns out there. What I want to sort of reiterate is why we are still recommending this and then, and then uh, some alternatives to address some of the concerns. So first off, it's important that there be a financial incentive. And I think the challenge that we've had in recent years is there were tonnage goals that we had kind of set when we were trying to get to zero waste by 2020 at one point. You remember, you remember hearing that? So we just had a super steep line going down to, to zero, and it was a little bit too ambitious. So Recology has not been able to meet the tonnage goals that have been the zero waste incentive. Uh, and so what we're doing is we're changing that to based on tonnage to the percent recovery. And the percent recovery is based on tonnage, but Percent recovery is really about how well, it's much more directly linked to how they're managing the system. They have more control over that than just straight tons. What happens if we have a booming economy again, which is basically what happened you know, for a number of years. So we had our diversion incentives like that, and we had a booming economy up here, and it was just an impossible job for them uh, without having a big trash processing facility. So we're looking at recovery rate percent, 39% is really low, and as Maurice Quinlan said, the biggest reason for that, we peaked at 62% in 2014, is we had a facility that was processing well over 100,000 tons of mostly concrete. You heard the term inerts, concrete, asphalt, that's heavy stuff. Uh, that was basically 100% recovery. So that has been the biggest reason why we've dropped way down. The other has been the change in the markets, China closing its doors, standards going down to one-tenth, 
stricter, were 10 times stricter than they were before. And what that meant is a lot of adjustments in the processing to get cleaner material, which meant more residual. So we saw the residual, which is the stuff that gets pulled out of in the recycling and composting, going having to go to landfill to meet those stricter market standards. And I think that with the suite of options that we're talking about here, Recology can make some incremental because the first target that we're talking about, and we can go to the next slide. Uh, and I excuse all the numbers, but I just this is the numbers that we were, had recommended for the next two rate years. Actually, has a logic of getting to that bottom right number of seventy percent. That's the number that we figure that Recology has to recover to meet our twenty thirty goals. So, how do we get from where we are now to seventy percent? And if we go to the next slide. That's what it looks like graphically. Looks like a straight line, but it, you can notice it curves up a little bit in the last few years. Recognizing that once we bring on trash processing at scale, we'll have a quantum leap in recovery, and we're not gonna get there in the next two years. So it's a small incremental step, but I feel like that incentive uh, is still an important principle. As is, we'll go on the next slide. As is the ability, if Recology doesn't meet it, uh, the system that we've had in place, which I would support, Recology would recommend a little more flexibility, which is if the first two targets are not met, they go back to the ratepayers. Typically, that's offset COLA increases. So the ratepayers get that back the next year. And if the third and fourth targets are not met, then Recology could theoretically propose some critical new investments which is what they did over several years, $20 million of improvements at Recycle Central to respond to the dramatic market changes. Now we're talking about a shorter rate period, so there may be less need, but I do feel like having that reserve fund has been valuable and would, would personally prefer that. But if they don't, that can then go back to the rate payers. So if they don't meet the targets, the rate payers can, can get it back. And uh, the next slide, I want to uh, acknowledge that it's possible the rate administrator and the rate board won't uh, kind of approve the rate payers funding uh, a zero waste incentive up front, uh, even though it's a recommendation. So I want to acknowledge some alternatives that we're uh, open to. One is the, as the rates have gone up over the years, the amount that 2%, the, the zero waste fund is based on 2% profit, that's now at over 8 million, would be over $8 million, whereas in the past it was more around six. That's a lot. I actually think if that was half to four million, that's still a, uh, a decent incentive. The other option is to look at having these same percent targets, but not having ratepayers pay into a fund up front, and and you kind of wait. In this case, because it's a two-year rate process, they would have to wait maybe two years, and then that, if they met that incentive, you know that maybe uh, additional profit would be allowed or. Uh, the, the reward would come to Recology. It would be a delayed reward. And as you'll see in the, and so that has the, that has the benefit of avoiding ratepayers paying into a fund in the next two years. Uh, and it is similar in concept to other cities like Oakland that have diversion targets in their agreements. And if they are met or not, they're kind of, the impact is in the, in the future. It's actually, calculated as a rate adjustment in the next year. So like if you have a target here, if they're, if they're below it, then the company in a sense loses, they actually have a penalty uh, reward system. Uh, 
so that's, that's in a broad sense, some potential alternatives to sort of continuing the zero waste incentive fund based on percent targets. And so I kind of threw out a lot. I think I will pause. That's really uh, the last. The last slide is that. Uh, the, I guess the, the question for you all to answer among yourselves is, is whether to support the resolution or potentially uh, modify it. So that's the end of my formal comments, and I welcome questions. Thank you very much. Discussion comments? Yes, Commissioner Hunter. So I'll ask my question now on the neighborhood cleanups, if you don't. Oh, yes. <laughs> okay, sorry. I, uh, yeah, so you're, you're talking about that kind of weekend cleanup. Yeah. Uh, our position is that the proposal, as we understood it, was basically for just a trash collection. And we just see that as making it easier for people to, to trash stuff. And what people will bring won't necessarily be stuff that only goes in the trash. They're going to bring stuff that is piled up in their garage, you know, or they're doing a house cleanup, or maybe doesn't fit into their small bins. And that can be a lot of stuff that could be recycled. I mean, they might bring a whole load of yard trimmings. So we would only support that if we can have the three streams, including recycling and composting. And the other thing is a lot of these materials are potentially reusable. And reuse is higher up in the hierarchy, more environmentally climate beneficial. And we've been talking with organizations like Goodwill that would be happy to come partner in and help collect reusable materials. So we recognize that there's more of a cost associated with that, uh, not necessarily tripling the cost if you're adding two bins, because we also, another way of looking at that is if people are bringing a certain set about a material and a, and a portion of that can be recycled and composted, not just all trashed, then it, that same volume is going to be the same number of bins. And so instead of having 10 bins, you know, whatever the number is, let's say, instead of having six large bins at a cleanup that's all trash, maybe it's two, two, and two. And so if it's the same number of bins, then I don't think there's necessarily an increased cost on that part of it. I think that you have this down pat. Generally, I would be surprised if someone didn't bring something that didn't belong in the trash and it just got contaminated or they had to haul it back to their house. Specifically, the point on reuse, though, I think is one of the most important. Generally, I don't mind the increased cost because it's the right thing to do. Additionally, thank you for answering all of my questions before I got to them. Excellent presentation, as always. Thank you. Uh, yes, Commissioner Sullivan. Um, so not a question, but I just want to start out by saying I have great confidence in the zero waste team at the Environment Department to do the right thing here. So I'll be very supportive of the resolution because you guys are, have been in the weeds, not to use a bad term, but um, I think you know <laughs> what you're doing and I'd, I'd um, be happy to follow your, follow your lead. Um, but I have a question about the zero waste. Um, and before I get to the zero waste incentive, I just want to say I'm, I am personally skeptical about outreach as a, as a big solution to the problem that we're following because I think we've tried outreach um, for a long, long time, and I will bet that uh, a lot of the people that get those things in the mail will put them right in the wrong bin, probably. Um, <laughs> so I, I really like the idea of using incentives to try to solve this problem, both incentives at the source of the production, you know, the person that's putting the 
aluminum can in the green bin, um, but also incentives for, for ecology to, to get it right. So does the zero waste incentive is, and this is probably a dumb question that was answered in the, in the, in the materials you, you gave us, but is that type of incentive where you say to Recology, here's a goal we want you to meet, you figure out how to do it, and if you, if you get there, you get this, this benefit under the, under the contract, or, or is it some other approach? Yeah, I, I think, you know, there's, I mean, you're hearing a lot of different strategies to sort of deal with, you know, contamination, and there's possible ways of processing tweaking, and, and so it is sort of setting that goal for ecology to say, okay, well, you know, let's look at what we can do. The, the rate-setting process kind of locks in what ecology can char charge the customers, but uh, historically they're not locked into how to spend every dollar because that's just not practical. So there's, there's some, you know, flexibility there. Uh, we've seen them make extra efforts or investments to sort of work to ch achieve zero-waste incentives they were, you know, there was some achievement in the early years of that, uh, but not recently. So, uh, yeah, and I think you know, it's the 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 fact that these targets are quite modest in increments is sort of a recognition that there's a limitation to how much can be done. But uh, you know, with opportunities of trash processing in future years, you know, then then you know we can get more gain. Uh, but I do think we need a, a you know a range of, of tools here that deal with dealing uh, with the customers uh, directly on their behavior, and then also how that material is handled once it goes into the trucks and is processed. Right, and and this is a, I guess a two-year contract, and we have uh, a 2030 goal for reaching 70%. So we will be coming at this again and again over the next seven years. Yeah, um, I. Overall, there's a there's an approach to kind of regulating pollution where you you don't try to micromanage everything, but where you say to the to the regulated entity, here's your goal, figure out how to get there, because you you in many ways cases know how to do that better than we do. I think in some cases we really do want to get in and 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 say we think this is the way to, to go, but maybe there's some other um, approaches where we just say here's the goal and figure out how to get there, and if you get there, we'll, we'll give you these benefits under the contract. Yeah, I, mean, I think it's a combination. Obviously, we've, you know, identify a lot of specific things they can do, but there's, I think we always need to be looking at what's happening, and they could easily come out with, uh, you know, new ideas, and they might say, well, what do you think about this? And great, let's try that. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, yes, Commissioner Stevenson. I just have a clarifying question. I'm just trying to figure something out. So in the... Um, presentation, the first presentation we saw, I think that we saw a $4.4 million number on the contamination enhancement increase in 2024. But the camera piece said something about several hundred thousand. So I'm trying to just get clarity on how much it cost, how much the camera program costs specifically. Yeah, I think Recology or Jay will need to answer that. And it might be worth saying how that 4.4 is coming. Yeah, so it, it's the net of all the contamination pieces, so the, the waste zero enhancements, the contamination outreach. Gotcha. And then the cameras, and plus the five million. So that's the combination helpful. of the other expenditures is around 600,000. Okay, yep. that's really helpful, thank you. I did have a series of questions about the camera. So from what I've gathered, and this goes back to Commissioner Hunter's earlier question, we don't have a clear answer from anyone in this room whether there's actual liability associated with 
cameras in the hopper. Do, can anyone answer that? Have we consulted the city attorney's office even about this by chance? Um, we have not consulted the city attorney uh, about this proposal. I do think it's important, you know, to my colleagues on the commission that we try to move this resolution today. But what I would generally suggest is that we add some amendment language to make sure we're consulting our city attorney's office to limit li the city's liability and hopefully the ecology's liability in particular. Like it's, this is not the type of law I practice, uh, but my recollection uh, is that there's no reasonable expectation of privacy in trash under Fourth Amendment search and seizure law. But that said, there might be some kind of statutory provision like California state law that we're not aware of that goes above and beyond. And I want to just make sure the city isn't sued at the end of the day. So from a policy perspective, I go back to Commissioner Sullivan's. I, I do agree that you know this uh, technology is probably important to push you know bad actors along uh, toward hopefully better behavior. But I am also mindful of the, you know our liability as an organization in a city and county. Um, Commissioner, if I just yes. may, I, I, one thing that occurs to me is while the use of these cameras is sort of new and they're evolving, the implementation of our refuse separation compliance ordinance that targets the largest generators, you remember that? So that is requiring an audit by Recology, a thorough audit of each of the three streams and then determining whether they've exceeded set threshold standards. And the way they do those audits is by going through and looking at a sample of the material in the load and photographing it with handheld cameras. So they're taking pictures. Uh, and this is, you know, this, this process has been sort of talked about with our uh, city attorney. And in fact, we just, uh, we put together a package of regulations uh, to further enforce that. So the point being is that we are using cameras, they're just not the same. But that, Using cameras to identify contamination is a long practice in the industry, and I haven't heard of uh, liability issues on that. Uh, yeah, I did notice the photos earlier, even in our packets of people literally taking photos of trash yeah. to try sort. Yeah. But we'll, we'll confirm with the city attorney to make sure it complies with our surveillance laws that we have locally. Um, with that, so I mean the. I don't think it's a huge amendment at the end of the day, like just adding the words maybe after consulting with the city attorney's office to minimize the city's liability uh, on page. I can even isolate, you know, the page number, page two, line 20, where we talk about, you know, using, you know, the collection truck cameras, the testing of them and whatnot, and the new technology, maybe adding it as a phrase after improved collection route monitoring. Um, again, like line 19 through 20. How about one tweak to that language, maybe to confirm compliance with applicable privacy laws? Sure. Is that? Yeah, I think that sounds good. So just a point of order, do we, do we make a m motion to amend it first and then to accept it as amended, or do we have to move to push the resolution forward first and then amend it? Yes, Charles, do you want to? Wait, <laughs> I see you inching toward the opponent. Uh, Charles Sheehan, Policy and Public Affairs for the department. Um, I think because we, there's no emotion on the table and so we're just chatting, what would be ideal is maybe to make an emotion to amend and pass so it's all in one. That's my, my recommendation because you haven't made a motion yet. And so, so you can continue talking amongst yourself to get to that amendment and then you can kind of make that emotion. I think that's how I would do it. 
Do you need me to read, you know, that language aloud again, Kyle, for the minutes? Uh, that would be helpful, Commissioner. Okay. So, again, at line 20, where it ends with route monitoring from line 10 to 20, comma, and after consulting with the city attorney's office to minimize the city's liability and ensure that we're in, the city is in compliance with data protection laws, comma, then uh, the rest of the language can stand as is with testing of collection truck cameras, et cetera, et cetera. Are we ready for a motion? So I'll move to adopt the resolutions with the amendment um, just suggested. A second. All right, we have a motion from Commissioner Sullivan, a second from Commissioner Stevenson. Uh, that said, let's go to public comment then. We'll begin with public comment here in the room. Are there any members of the public in the room this evening who would wish to make a comment on this item? Seeing none, we'll proceed to remote public comment. Members of the public who wish to make a public comment on this item should now press star three to be added to the queue. For those already on hold in the queue, please continue to wait until it is your turn to speak. We do have one caller in the queue. Hello caller, you're unmuted. Your three minutes begin now. Can you hear me now? Yes. Great, uh, David Pilpel. So there are a lot of different elements here with not much time. I will focus briefly on only a few issues. Um, I've made a number of comments on and off the record. I think Jay fairly summarized them uh, earlier. Uh, I've asked for more information summarizing the impound account requests from uh, both uh, city departments, uh, environment and public works. I am concerned about nexus proportionality uh, and reason reasonableness as relates to rates and ultimately value uh, for the rate payers. Um, I believe that um, services that are provided to rate payers or where rate payers benefit from particular uh, programs or expenses, uh, that those costs are potentially uh, appropriate uh, here. And um, I appreciate that there's greater concern um, to the issue of nexus in this cycle. On cameras, I would suggest that we don't care what you eat or what you read. We do care where you put your discards. Um, so that's the only reason uh, for uh, cameras and contamination charges is to assess whether the discards are going in the correct stream, what people are doing behind closed doors in terms of eating, reading, or whatnot is really not our concern. Um, I can discuss with uh, staff the slides on the impound account, contamination charges, outreach and technology, organics pre-processing, the weekend neighborhood events, and uh, approaches to uh, zero waste incentives, uh, ZWI. It's not just about rates. There are a lot of related issues here. I think the resolution is okay. Personally, I don't think it's going to have uh, much effect, but if it makes the commission and, and others feel good, then that's fine. I'm sure there will be much more discussion on these issues Thursday morning, and anyone uh, can and is invited to listen in. My primary concerns are still about contamination, processing, um, equipment, facility, and real estate issues. Uh, and just finally, on the amendment on privacy, um, to the extent that the cameras would be on recology trucks, and that's a recology uh, proposal, 
I don't see how the city would have any liability. It is strictly a customer-focused program. I'm not aware that any city employee would have access to any of the um, camera, uh, videos, photographs, any of that. So I'm, I'm not sure that the city actually would have any uh, liability uh, with regard to it. But it, again, if that makes people feel better, then so be it. Um, more as this process rolls on, and thank you very much for listening. Thank you for your comment. And seeing no additional callers in the queue, public comment on this item is closed. Thank you, Kyle. Please call the roll. President on? Aye. Vice President Wan? Aye. Commissioner Bermejo is excused. Commissioner Hunter? Aye. Commissioner Stevenson? Aye. Commissioner Sullivan? Aye. Uh, that means the motion carries. So thanks again to everybody for staying late tonight and enduring this long hearing. I very much appreciate your efforts. Okay, next item, please. All right, the next item is item 12, Director's Report. The speakers are Tyburn Chu, Acting Director, and Charles Sheehan, Chief Policy and Public Affairs Officer. The explanatory document is the Director's Report, and this item is for discussion. Thank you, Kyle. Uh, commissioners, as everyone's leaving, uh, just a couple of updates, and I'll abbreviate them in the interest of time, as I know this has been a long meeting, uh, which is why I like having a director's report at the end, so I can make them short and succinct. Um, hopefully last week, uh, commissioners saw the Chronicle story about our commercial reuse program, uh, and if not, we'll make sure to re forward it out to everyone, but it was a great highlight of the tremendous work that our zero waste team is doing, and not only them, uh, but our outreach team in terms of reaching out to small businesses and offering this service. And so we're proud to have uh, announced with Mayor Breed the extension of this program over two more years to provide a $500 subsidy to small businesses to help them with the switch. Uh, on the Climate Action Plan marketing side, uh, we wrapped up our campaign, which you all saw. Um, two notable events occurred over the past uh, roughly month. Uh, we had one Climate Action Fair in the Mission District uh, where we had Commissioner Bermejo um, speak and we had uh, about 60 attendees there so we did an in-language presentation and uh, Commissioner Wan was at our latest one in Chinatown at my old elementary school alma mater uh, where we had 120 people uh, attend and we were able to talk about the benefits of induction cooking our climate action plan and really get the word out there so two tremendous events uh, I wanted to highlight uh, one critical movement on a position, which is our deputy director position. Um, so I'm happy to announce we've selected our finalists for this position, and we have made an offer that has tentatively been accepted. I'm not gonna reveal the name of the individual yet, uh, as we still need to do a couple more just standard HR things around reference checks, but uh, we're really excited to have this person start in the department, and I look forward to bringing him at the next commission meeting uh, to introduce him to everyone. Uh, of course, I have a note here about departing commissioners. We've already spoken at length about Commissioner Stevenson. You will be missed. Um, and I've appreciated your guidance and leadership as I was going through the budget process as I got dropped in uh, at an inopportune time uh, and appreciated your leadership and support through that process and also this process, which um, leads into my next update about the budget. Um, we've had very productive conversations, and so you can take that hint for what it is. Um, because I've often said when we've not had productive conversations uh, with the mayor's office relative to our budget. Um, of course, the mayor's budget uh, will be released on June 1st, which is about a week away. Um, but we are very optimistic, is what I will say, 
uh, and looking forward to that budget being released uh, that we will have additional resources allocated to the department, um, which is something that this commission advocated for through your budget process. And I think uh, with the advocates, with all of the stakeholders involved, uh, I think it really did make a difference this time. Uh, the next update is going to be on our grants, which is also related uh, because I think this was a huge selling point for why we were able to advocate for the funds. Uh, we have done a lot of work, as Charles is going to show you, uh, about getting additional federal and state grant dollars. You heard it from Hannah when she was giving her tr clean transportation update. There's a lot of money from the federal and state government that we're trying to bring into the city. And Charles is going to give an update uh, as far as where we are right now. Just over the past few months with those additional staff we brought on from the ad back, uh, he'll talk about where we are right now. Sure. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Tyrone. Can uh, we have the slides up there? Um, a little known secret, the, um, the grant team member is actually on the policy public affairs team. It's not something I talk about very often. <laughs> but um, as Commissioner Bermejo said, there is a lot of money out there. And... That is 100% true, and so we are following and tracking that um, um, that money very closely. Um, and we get asked this question all this time, like, what are you doing about all that money coming down for the environment? And so the answer is we're tracking it closely and we're applying for everything that is within, is, in with our, is within our scope, is within the scope of city partners that we have with other city departments. Sometimes if it's not within our scope, but if it's in another city department, we'll pass it on and saying, hey, have you seen this? Other times city departments come to us. So there's a lot of activity um, throughout the city. So I'm going to briefly summarize this. So we've kind of... Um, tracking everything, and um, you know, we've already submitted about six um, proposals since November, both to the state and to the federal government and one um, professional organization. Um, and then we're looking at an additional ten um, that are in the queue. Um, about half of those are transportation. You saw that from Henna. There's a lot of money for EV charging coming from the state, coming from the federal government, and so that represents probably about a half or three-fourths of that 28 million that's currently um, out there that we're eyeing. So we kind of have had a proposal going out per month, sometimes you know two in one month. And again, what Henna said, over the next two to three months, we may have three or four transportation grant proposals going out, both to the federal government and to the state government. So there is a lot of activity, and um, we'll keep you updated. Uh, yes. To ask a, just a follow-up question. Yes. So, do we have a timeline when they will announce? No. The timeline for every grant proposal we submit in the agency that decides who is awarded is, is different. And these are all different agencies within the federal government, within the state of California. And so, you know, sometimes it's three months, sometimes it's nine months. And, and then even once you get notice that you're going to be awarded, there's like a three to six month negotiation period. So... The timelines are difficult once you like, you know, submit and want to know if you won, if you not, if you didn't win, and when you start negotiating. So timelines are tough. So so far, we haven't heard one that's committed yet, right? Since November, we've applied for six. Uh, we have not received official word yet. Um, so we're still waiting. Yeah. And we are in preliminary. So this is it gets into the the timing issue. Like we're in preliminary conversations and negotiations on one grant. So all of them are kind of at different stages. So 
when you're in preliminary negotiations, you generally are, are good to get the grant, but still not guaranteed. So we don't like to say, yeah, we got the money until we got the check. <laughs> so one, one question about, about the, um, the, the clean, clean transportation, 15 million, that's, that's large relative to the funding we have now. That, yes, like that is magnitudes, a, Would that double, triple? No, our funding for EVs within the city is basically zero. So, so that's, that's the order of magnitude. Like we're bringing in money that the city is not allocating itself towards uh, installing electric vehicle infrastructure. So that's how important it is that we have Hannah and the team working on like applying for these grants. And the other thing I'll say just in the grant process, it is a very labor intensive process to, to apply for each one of these because uh, with the city rules, we have to go out for a competitive public solicitation every time we um, get a grant partner now. So we want to go out for an EV charging grant. We have to go put a public solicitation out, see who's interested, score that, figure out the package, and then like go through this entire process and then put together the grant proposal. Uh, so for that 15 million, we did uh, receive three uh, really great proposals that we're excited to move forward with with that $15 million funding um, that we're working on right now in terms of solidifying uh, the data points of where the fast chargers will go an e-mobility hub that we'd like to also part, have as part of that. So we're putting together these, these really uh, comprehensive packages. And I, I will also say that we've gotten a lot of interest from the private sector in wanting to support uh, our, our applications. So uh, you can think of who those private partners are, but there's a lot of interest in trying to expand the number of EV-related uh, infrastructure around the city for their benefit. And so we're getting letters of support. We're getting different chambers. Uh, coalitions and so it's all going to make for a very competitive uh, package and in, in, in part where I was going with my question is, is is this going to be about kind of increasing the staff that's dedicated to this 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 goal or is it more about putting infrastructure in the ground around the, the city the 15 million yeah it's about the infrastructure in the ground okay um, it's about for charging we're not much. talking about doubling the the clean transportation team again. <laughs> there might be some money for staff to like oversee the grant management, but it is mainly for shovel okay. in the ground project or projects. And to just, you know, clarify the scale, like the 15 million on that list is the biggest grant by far. The second and third biggest grants are from the state of California, the CEC, they are also transportation grants, one for 7 million, one for 5 million. Um, so the 15 million is definitely the leader of the pack. And the way we're kind of evaluating grants too is obviously one it provides a great public benefit and, and we think it's a worthwhile grant to go for and so we're not going after like really small grants where it's not going to have a major impact because it's not worth our time one of the second criteria we look at is do they fund staff or can they provide funding for our department to support our staff because that's always an ongoing issue for us um, and so we kind of go through our checklist uh, every time we consider a grant application and I'm looking at my tiny little list. That one does provide a little funding for staff. But they're, they're never going to, like, most of the time, I should say, they're not going to fully fund new positions. Um, and then we also have to look at how tenuous the funding is and how long the funding lasts, whether it makes sense to bring someone on for a one-year project. And so we kind of weigh all those things. But all these grant are new grant opportunities, right? None of these are renewal or anything, right? Oh, these are all new. These are all new. And there's more coming out every month. Um, it really has been kind of drinking from a fire hose when it comes to federal, which is great, yeah. federal and state grants. Um, 
but it just we, we're combing through it constantly. So we're we're really excited to hopefully bring our uh, new senior grants coordinator on board to replace Sean uh, in that role to help us with all the logistics. Uh, yes, commissioners. Yeah, I just wanted to say, and I don't know who to give these kudos to, but um, I feel like there were all of the presentations today were just great in terms of the visuals, the charts, the design of them. I felt like the information that we got is data-driven and um, was articulated in a visual way that made tons of sense. So I don't know, I just feel like that's been a big shift in a positive way. So I wanted to give a kudos out while you were giving your report. Thanks. We'll, we'll pass. We'll pass that along. We did it just for you for your last. Your last <laughs> 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 to show you what you're going to miss. So. <laughs> um, and then we. I just did have one final update. Thanks, Charles. Uh, which is related to another project I've been moving forward on with the team. Uh, so currently we're at 1155 Market. Uh, we occupy the third fully fully occupy the third floor, and we have half the second floor. Um, given the hybrid remote schedules, we're in the office about three days a week. Um, it's very visible that we're not all in at the same time and there's available capacity. Um, so I've been working with the real estate department and staff on consolidating our footprint uh, from the department. So eliminating the uh, occupants on the second floor, moving them up to the third floor and consolidating. Uh, I do have a quick presentation just to go over a couple of the highlights as far as why I felt like this was a good move for us. Just waiting on uh, SFGov TV. Reason number one, uh, it's about $500,000 in annual savings. So that's how much we pay in leasing costs just to have that second half of the second floor. Um, so this is savings that we'll have for the department. The next slide. Uh, again, as I said, more capacity employees. We're all working hybrid remote schedules, and so we have the capacity now to kind of fit on one floor. Next slide. Uh, the total cost for the move uh, is actually quite expensive because we essentially have to break down all of the cubicles we have on the third floor and then uh, readjust them for newer cubicles with adjustable tables. So, all the cubicles we have now were the pre-existing ones we had at 11 or 1455 market. And so they're not ergonomic, they're just, they're, they're just old cubicles. And so we wanna have the flexibility of having everyone have sit-stand desks, dual monitors, and so we're gonna upgrade. And the next slide is how we're gonna get the $603,000. Well, taking care of that too. So uh, real estate has agreed essentially to front us the money uh, because the benefit to real estate is now they can lease out the entire second floor where they were having problems leasing out that second half. So what we came to an arrangement was, I'll consolidate everyone um, if you front the money for the, the move, so the $600,000, and we get to pay that back over our normal leasing costs uh, that we would have paid if we occupied the second floor. So we'll essentially pay that back in about two years uh, which we would have paid on the second floor anyway, and we get the benefit of having everyone on one floor, upgraded cubicles for everyone, and then long-term we'll, we'll reap the savings from uh, being consolidated. So just wanted to give you that update uh, that we're going to be moving in the next couple months. I think that's it. That concludes my report. Any questions? Discussion? Oh, when would that happen? 
Uh, we're probably early fall, late summer is what we're targeting right now. And so we're, we're getting the vendor quotes and the cubicles, figuring out when the delivery is going to take place. And so I'll, I'll come back to the commission and give a, a more detailed schedule probably at the next commission meeting. Let's uh, take public comment. And seeing no members of the public in the room, we'll proceed to remote public comment. Members of the public who wish to make a public comment on this item should now dial star three to be added to the queue. For those already on hold in the queue, please continue to wait until it's your turn to speak. And we do have one caller in the queue. Hello, caller, you're unmuted. Your three minutes begin now. Great, David Pilpel again. Um, very good idea to consolidate space. I was going to ask if you could uh, post the presentation, and I see that that happened during the meeting. So let's hear it for technology, and there are the slides. Um, anyway, uh, great work on that and the rest of the director's report. Thanks for listening. All right, thank you for your comment. And seeing no other callers in the queue, public comment on this item is closed. Thank you, next item. The next item is item 13, presentation on commission on the environment survey. The sponsor is Charles Sheehan, Chief Policy and Public Affairs Officer. The speaker is Kyle Wainer, Commission Affairs Officer. This item is for discussion. Thank you, uh, commissioners. So, um, you know, it's kind of been a uh, challenging three years with COVID going to virtual, going to in-person hybrid, um, you know, amending our processes so that grants and contracts are now coming um, before the commission for approval. We've had the director search um, and we've gotten funding from the Board of Supervisors um, to fund the Climate Action Plan. And so it made sense for us to ask a bunch of questions. Um, in particular, two questions with, you know, so much change and, and differentiation, does the structure or the system for commission need to be adjusted? That was kind of one of the main questions we wanted to ask. And then the secondly, we did just want to get some feedback on how the services we deliver, how you're receiving them, what you think of them. And so for all those reasons, that's why we did the survey. Um, so we've got, a, Kyle's gonna run through a presentation and then we're happy to take any questions and there may be some discussion. All right. Thank you, commissioners. Uh, Kyle Wainer, Commissioner Affairs, I'll be brief. If you have any questions, please let me know. And I'll run through the survey results. So agendas and explanatory materials are provided in sufficient time to prepare for meetings. Most commissioners strongly agreed or agreed. One commissioner disagreed. We do strive to strike a balance between the need to publish the meeting agenda materials beyond the 72-hour window required under the Brown Act. Um, on the other hand, we um, are mindful of the possibility that something may happen that could prompt a change in the agenda if we post too early, which we also strive to avoid. I use Director Point to access and review meeting materials. Uh, two commissioners reported using Director Point very frequently, while other commissioners reported using Director Point um, only occasionally or rarely. Um, and just for context, the department does pay about uh, $2,400 each year for Director Point. Agendas and explanatory materials are clear, informative, and free of errors. Most commissioners strongly agreed or agreed, one was neutral. Meetings are efficient and well facilitated. Uh, commissioners were pretty uniform on this. We want to make sure that we're being efficient with everyone's time. Presentations are substantive and clear. Uh, most commissioners agreed or strongly agreed. One was neutral. 
presenters are knowledgeable and well-prepared. Um, again, commissioners were pretty uniform on this question. Department staff follow up on my questions or re request in a timely manner. Uh, the results here were a little more interesting. Most commissioners strongly agreed or agreed. One was neutral and one commissioner disagreed. Department staff incorporate my feedback and put my ideas into action. Uh, most commissioners agreed uh, while two are neutral. I feel I have a good understanding of how the department's making progress on key goals. Uh, most commissioners here agreed. One was neutral, one disagreed. Uh, we didn't have any commissioners who strongly agreed, so we'll be thinking more about how we can communicate progress and report back on key metrics to our commission. I feel the commission plays an important role in shaping environmental policy in San Francisco. Uh, this question was a little more open-ended, uh, but we are curious to hear how folks felt about this one. A slim majority of commissioners strongly agreed or agreed, while three were neutral. Uh, what subjects would you like to hear more about at commission meetings? There's a clear preference for greater focus on capital implementation and ordinance implementation. Other topics of interest included clean transportation, community engagement, energy and efficiency, and environmental justice. I support a hybrid meeting format to allow for remote participation and public comment. Most commissioners strongly agreed or agreed. Uh, one was neutral, one disagreed. Uh, and we do want to note that the city attorney's office has recommended that boards and commissions adopt a hybrid meeting format in order to be better equipped to respond to requests for reasonable accommodation on the basis of a disability. That's a new development over the past couple months. I support the use of environment department funds for SFG TV streaming and closed captioning and full commission meetings. Most commissioners strongly agreed or agreed. One was neutral and one strongly disagreed. Uh, in general, five o'clock is a convenient time to meet. Most commissioners strongly agreed or agreed. One was neutral. In general, I can be available for meetings on the following days. Uh, here, there's a clear preference for Monday or Tuesday, followed by Wednesday and Thursdays and Fridays really aren't um, convenient for commissioners. Um, and as Charles discussed, um, this is a time of transition given the departure of a couple commissioners, the return to in-person meetings, and we're thinking more about how we can ensure that commission meetings are efficient and impactful uh, and making the kind of marathon meetings that we're having tonight a little less frequent. Um, and now that the department's um, required to obtain commission approval before executing contracts and grants over a certain threshold, um, we're also thinking about ways that the commission can remain responsive to department needs. Most commissioners seemed open to the idea of transitioning to monthly meetings um, of the full commission and um, transitioning our standing committees to an ad hoc status. Um, two commissioners were unsure about the idea. We've included written comments from commissioners about the proposal uh, here in this slide. And to uh, clarify, we're not proposing that the commission or the committees hold regular meetings outside of City Hall, um, so the meeting location uh, won't change. And we've included any additional comments from commissioners uh, here in this slide. Regarding the question about SFGTV, we did reach out to the Department of uh, Technology about this. Um, unfortunately, we really don't have data on the number of viewers who watch the live cable cast. Um, of full commission meetings, um, but we do have data for the number of viewers who watch meeting recordings on the city's website. Um, so we're able to keep track of that. Um, and that's also something that we're able to do without involving SFGovTV. We are able to record meetings um, for visual and audio. Um, they're just not quite as polished and professional, um, and they wouldn't include the professional closed captioning. Um, and with that, I think I'm gonna turn it back over to Charles. Thank you for that, Kyle. And so I think this is our last slide. Um, just want to um, leave you with um, 
the thoughts for potential discussion and action, and that is, of course, the schedule and frequency of full commission meetings, how that relates to the um, policy and operations committee meetings, and um, any other process changes that you may want to make or request regarding commission meetings. Thoughts, questions? Uh, I'll generally just say thank you to the both of you. I ask you some of the weediest, weirdest <laughs> questions, and you always get back to me. I also, sorry, I'm a little tired as we get later into the night. Every single request that I have asked of the department for follow-up, be it from the original controller's report that we first met you at, or a random commission meeting like this, you have made sure that staff has followed up. That level of detail is something that I find it really hard to find in my employees sometimes. So thank you for continuing to do such a great and detailed job. Certainly, thank you. Thank you. Oh, can I ask, is City Hall still very difficult or challenging actually to schedule the room? It, it is. Um, what Kyle made mention to me is like there are more commissions now than there were before COVID. Um, and one of the rooms is offline that we used to use. Um, and so it's, it's definitely challenging. And then, of course, there's the, you get the room, but do you have SFGov TV? And they can only handle so many meetings at a time. Um, and that is also, that's a kind of a double challenge. Like, we've got to have a quorum of commissioners, we've got to have a room, and then we've got to have SFGov TV. And all three are hard to hit sometimes. I would just like to say thank you for staying on top of the dashboard idea. I think it's important, and I think it will help us do our jobs so much better when that information is available. So thanks for staying on top of that. And any thoughts from staff on how soon you want to try to amend our bylaws and meet monthly? So if, um, if the commission was interested, probably at the next commission meeting, um, which would be July, Yep, July, we would bring forth um, an amended bylaws that you could approve or not approve. And we've talked a little bit about what that might look like, and I'm happy to take any feedback on that. But we would probably move the policy and the operations committee to kind of ad hoc or as needed to the call of the chair of each individual committee. So we'd still want to have members assigned and a chair assigned, and so there could be you know action that was taken if, if need to be. Um, we would probably want to keep the operations committee meeting in January because per city ordinance we have to have two budget meetings, two public budget meetings, and they have to be a certain, they have to be like 15 days apart. And so we kind of designed the schedule just for that. And there is a very deep priority dive that we have to take at that first meeting. And then there's the more performer of just passing the budget at the second commission meeting. So it makes sense to kind of keep that operations meeting in January. Um, and then for a full commission meeting, we're going to look at Tuesdays, um, where we are right now, just because we occupy the, this kind of Tuesday slot right now, and it's just easier, like other people are steering clear of our Tuesday slot in other months because we have it every other month, and so we'd, we'd be looking at um, trying to get that uh, for the same Tuesday if we, if we move to an every month uh, sort of meeting schedule. That's what would be amended in our bylaws. Did I get, did I get everything? Yes. Questions or comments? If not, let's move to public comment, Kyle. Thank you, Charles. Okay. And see no members of the public in the room. We'll proceed to remote public comment.
Members of the public who wish to make a public comment on this item should now press star three to be added to the speaker queue. For those already on hold in the queue, please continue to wait until it's your turn to speak. We do have one caller in the queue. Hello, caller. You're unmuted. Your three minutes begin now. Can you hear me now? Yes. Great. Uh, David Pilpel again. Uh, well, you have at least uh, one viewer and participant in commission meetings and have for uh, many years. That would be me. Um, I think the fourth Tuesday would work if you go to a monthly uh, commission meeting schedule uh, in lieu of regular meetings for operations and policy. Um, touching back uh, several hours ago to Peter Dreckmeyer's comment, that would still allow for a joint meeting with the Public Utilities Commission, which also meets on uh, both the second and fourth uh, Tuesdays, starting at 1.30 in the building there down the hall in room 400. Um, and yeah, I, I think having fewer items that are focused for both information for the commission and the public and or policy decisions or direction from the commission to staff uh, would work by way of monthly commission meetings uh, in lieu of the uh, items that now go to policy or operations or go to the full commission. So it's a different model. Um, it would need a little uh, time to tweak and uh, blocking of City Hall meeting rooms, but it's very doable, and I may follow up with um, Commission Secretary uh, Wenner on the uh, particular responses from commissioners. I'm intrigued by uh, how various commissioners responded to the questions that were presented. Thanks for listening. Thank you for your comment. And seeing no further callers in the queue, public comment on this item is closed. All right, next item, please. All right, the next item is item 14, committee reports. This item is for discussion. Uh, Commissioner Sullivan, please give us a report on policy. Uh, the policy committee meetings previously scheduled for uh, April and May were canceled. The next policy committee meeting is scheduled for June 12th at 5 p.m. That concludes my report. Vice President Wan for operations. Uh, operations committee meeting scheduled for April 19th was canceled. Our next operations committee meeting will be held on Wednesday, July 19th at 5 p.m. City Hall, room 408. Thank you. Any other discussion, questions? Seeing none, let's go to public comment again. Okay, and again, we'll go straight to remote public comment. Members of the public, Participating remotely, may press star three to be added to the queue. For those already on hold in the queue, please continue to wait until it's your turn to speak. And seeing no callers in the queue, public comment on this item is closed. Great, next item. The next item is item 15, new business future agenda items. The speaker is Charles Sheehan, Chief Policy and Public Affairs Officer. This item is for discussion. Thank you, commissioners. I'll be brief. Um, the next commission meeting is scheduled for July 25th. Um, and as we heard from the updates, the next uh, policy committee meeting is scheduled for June 12th. And the next operation meeting is scheduled for 
July 19th. Um, we have been canceling those, and I do need to discuss with the chairs if we're going to cancel those, so stay tuned, and we'll post that on the website um, if we do decide to cancel them. For the upcoming commission meeting, we're looking at a couple of agenda items, including an update kind of on our energy efficiency programs, because there's been a lot of change there, as well as, um, as we saw in the PowerPoint, on topics that the commission is interested in, potentially more on progress and updates on the climate action plan, where we are with certain policies. Um, and we'll be looking at the rest of that um, spreadsheet to see if there's a few other um, topics that we want to bring forward. Thank you, Charles. Um, any other discussion, questions? Seeing none, let's go to public comment again. And again, we're going to go straight to remote public comment. Members of the public should now press star three to be added to the queue. For those already on hold in the queue, please continue to wait until it's your turn to speak. And seeing none, public comment on this item is closed. All right, next item, please. All right, the next item is item 16, adjournment. The meeting is adjourned. The time is 8.53 p.m. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, everybody. Good night.